0: Would never have shown you that place what you did if you cheat death there's a price to be paid i needed more time with her sometimes dead is better the soil of a man's heart Lewis, is stonier.
1: what we did with this was uh, a
0: secret if you've done something louis it's not too late to undo it well sometimes
1: that is better. That the only thing we have to fear
2: is fear itself. No. Be afraid. Be
1: very afraid. There's nothing to fear except God.
3: Podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, and welcome to not just another episode of The Fear of God. But one of our favorite kinds of episodes, it is, in fact, Quarterly King number five. This year, 2019, we are doing our sort of umbrella series of hashtag 19, uh, honoring the works, um, big and small of Stephen King. But we do like to really camp out on some of his more seminal works for these Quarterly Kings that we do every 25 episodes or so of the fear of God. This being quarterly king number five, we are today discussing pet cemetery. We are glad you're here at the fear of God, uh, where we find the holy and the horrific at the intersection of faith and fear. We dissect what scares us in order to find what saves us. I am one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. And like several of these quarterly kings, we do have, uh, a bit of a plethora, a myriad of guests that I would like to introduce to you here. So, um for the stand last year, um we had you know, I, I did this fun little thing where um I I gave each of our participants our conversationalists a a bad guy uh from the stand what we would come to call Flags Vegas uh, occupants. Well, additionally for it, which was last year sometime, it was it was previous to this. Uh for it, we also did the Losers Club well, for Pet Cemetery, you know, it's there actually aren't a ton of human characters. So, actually, what you know, in my in my bizarre inner workings of a brain, what I came up with this time around is what we have for Pet Cemetery is the menagerie of reanimated mammals. So, yes. <laughs> what I'm going to do, so if you've never been with us on the Quarterly King, you're in for a wild ride um so yes this is nathan speaking to you but i wanted to go down uh this menagerie of reanimated mammals which i want everyone to say as they're introduced three times fast because it's it's a mouthful but first we have uh mr ian olson so ian welcome buddy uh ian always speaks in a high tongue that i mean just to be frank will often bode ill portents so ian you my friend in the menagerie of reanimated mammals are going to be timmy baderman
4: okay yes oh so, yes yeah. thank you
3: yes you're welcome you're welcome welcome <laughs> I'm to the so party pleased. yes Ian. ian slash timmy okay so to be next, really animated yes yes you, <laughs> yes uh next we do have andy andy welcome back to the party you are scheduled to be on the stand but did have to bow out you got taken out by a bomb in boulder um but you know if if anyone knows andy's online persona well i guess i should say if you don't know andy's online persona get to know it uh just just be just don't pipe up and let him know you're there um because i mean you gotta love him but he can be a bit of a jackass
4: um
3: especially to one of our other guests that being a blake um but i you know I wouldn't call Andy's online persona mean per se, but I I could see how some might. And nonetheless, he does conduct himself a bit like he's in a china shop, which readily makes him the one and only Han Ratty the Bull, okay? <laughs> so, Andy, in the Menagerie of Reanimated Mammals, you, my friend, are Han Ratty the Bull. All right. All right. So, next. So, we got Ian, we got Andy. Next, we have Blake.
0: Uh, oh, man, I'm Blake. Not looking forward to this. <laughs> welcome welcome to the party buddy How's it um, going? yeah I, i'm well we'll Good. see how you are in a second All right, so okay.
3: yeah so blake i mean god love him but he's a bit snarky i mean <laughs> his online persona i mean if we're being real frank here he can be a bit high on his horse sometimes um he kind of looks down on you when you're just trying to have a little bit of fun oh my god <laughs> you know i mean like Blake Blake the way Blake conducts himself sometimes it's like dropping a dead bird on the bed during sexy time okay yes. so I mean Blake is I none like other this is going. than church church yes. the cat Yes, Blake is church the cat you're just trying to have a little fun and he's like here's a dead bird you sons of you know yeah, that's what that's kind of how Blake is You know, I, we I love him
0: I was hoping you were gonna give me church well,
3: there you are, buddy. You know, I'll take my five dollars via Venmo. Okay? Sounds um, good. As for me, okay, this is Nathan. Uh, most of you know me at this point. I am known to be both a bit childish and a little childlike in equal measure. Um, but, you know, it is tinged with a darkness born only of too many horror movies consumed. Uh, but brought into this world of horror by my co-conspirator and host... I was created in the ancient runes and cairns of horror stories of yore. I am, yes, ladies and gentlemen, the mad, murderous Gage Creed. Okay. Oh, yes. So uh, in our menagerie of reanimated mammals, uh, we currently have Han the Bull. We have Timmy Baderman, We've got Church the Cat. We've got Gage Creed. You would think, you would think that that would make our last participant, my, my co-host. You would think that that might make him... Lewis Creed in this analogy if I'm Gage you know it it does make a little bit of sense to go there but can there because you know can there be a Gage without a Lou I I think that's a reasonable argument to make but I would argue that before there was Lewis everyone (laughs) even before there was Judd before there was Stanley B in the long line of arbiters of that deep mysticism beyond the Deadfall, there was another <laughs> Yes, friends, I am referring to that beast that looked like a lizard born of a woman, king of the Mi'kmaq's lord of the country of the mad he is Oz the great and terrible, the Windigo himself <laughs> Reed <laughs> Hello,
5: everyone.
3: (laughs) Welcome, everyone, to the menagerie of reanimated matters.
5: I am happy about my position. I figured you would. Mr. Nathan Rouse, that is. I was was pretty convinced you were going to make me Rachel. And then I was like, okay, no. (laughs) Oz the Great and Terrible is so much better. It's so good. You have precedent.
4: You were Randall Flagg. You're just like, you are (laughs) prime (laughs) machinator of all sorts of. I I love it. Uh, Eldridge, evil, yeah. Oh. Well,
3: I mean, who was wait, Reed? Who were you in the Losers Club? I can't remember.
5: Oh, in the Losers Club, I was Beverly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs>
3: I thought that was you. <laughs> yeah, <that's> <laughs> <right>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought so that was you. That's right.
1: Yeah,
5: I thought that was Oh my gosh!
3: <laughs> well, gentlemen, welcome to Quarterly King number five. This ye olde pet cemetery. How's everybody doing? Doing well. Doing great. I,
4: I could not be more pleased. <laughs>
5: I'm so excited Good. that Good. you guys were able to make it for this. This is a big deal. It's uh, one of King's, obviously one of his most iconic works, uh, legendary in his canon. Uh, so I, I think uh, Nathan, if you don't mind, I'm gonna I'm gonna take us through a little. Uh, can, can I uh, fe-
3: can I throw us one little segment real quick here? Read a yeah, bit yeah, yeah. So so we
5: I, I do want to continue
3: this trend and. Reed, you and i have been negligent though i don't think we've omitted any uh intentionally or otherwise so i did want to honor you know we started i believe it was in the stand this this little segment for stephen king's material that of the (laughs) christs of king yes um i I am i am i am assuming that hopefully you guys had your jesus ears on as you were consuming this pet cemetery book um there is only one I only and, heard one. In Pet Cemetery. Reed, would you like to uh well actually you know what? If you don't mind, can one of any of our guests, did you catch the one and only Christ of King in Pet Cemetery? Anyone?
0: I did not.
5: I'll give him a Really? Hint. <laughs> yeah, I'll give is he him a hint. A preacher? It was, it the was preacher? said by no, it was said by Judd. Well,
4: it I remember it's him actually, in the movie saying Christ on his throne. There That's it the is! <laughs> there it but, is The <laughs> most or the most Christ orthodox, on his throne. No why Christ the would they king.
3: <laughs> right, right, right. The most orthodox Christ of King you're going to find. Yeah, is Stephen King that material. Is <laughs> it was almost disappointing, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs>
5: right. Yeah, there was so few of them. Because as soon as I heard it, it stood out to me. Because I listened to the audiobook to refresh. Yeah, it was actually, actually reverent. It, it stood out so much. I was like, oh, there it is. There it is. Uh, so but I was thank, sadly thank you for, alone.
3: Thank you for indulging us uh enjoying the Christ of King there read but please certainly
5: oh no of course so uh we're gonna we're gonna play uh a little bit of a game uh this is gonna be like you know sort of a a podcast long uh game until we get into the sort of the meatier perhaps somewhat heavier uh stuff of this piece um (laughs) but we're gonna make our way through as typically our format is we deal with like you know, little trivial elements, uh, I'll get to a few of those and invite any if any of you have some. And then we'll talk about some of the things we liked and didn't like. There's, we've got a lot of media to con, you know converse about here. We not only have the core book, the novel, but we also have the 1989 film directed by Mary Lambert. And then we have the most recent 2019 release, but then there's also the... Um, Audio drama, the radio drama from the BBC. So there's there's lots of things to reference. For the purposes of this particular little exercise to take us through uh the game, we're actually gonna have a straight-up competition, uh mono Uh-oh. mono and mono between the original nineteen eighty-nine film and the recently remade film. So we're going to have uh, basically a, a, a fight to the death, if you will, to see which of these we each liked better. There's going to be six different categories in which each of us will get to weigh in, and we'll obviously have some discussion around it. Um, weigh in and see which one we prefer, particularly in its relationship to the book. Um, or if you want to throw in you know, a quick jab from the radio drama as well, then that is also <laughs> allowed. So, um, All right, so we are going to be pitting the original... 1989 film versus the recent 2019 film. You guys ready?
4: Yes. Yes.
5: Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. Here's how we're going to play this game. I'm going to call on each of you. And you'll have a subject. You'll have a subject in which you have to. Jeez, uh,
3: I'm a little stressed out here. To,
5: yeah, <laughs> it's is pressure. This is legit. Okay, this is legit. So, um, so you're gonna have a subject, and you basically have to decide if you I at to least tried the to b- read.
3: I at least tried to prep everybody on theme. Oh like, no, hey, guys, no, no. What are the like, rules of the show game? Um,
5: so uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, and we're actually just gonna go in alphabetical order. Okay, so Andy, just just get ready. You're first. You're 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 gonna be first for so every we're not. One Going by last name. Nope, nope. Or, first name, or so. by character,
3: or by character, reanimated mammal character. Name. No, 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 no.
5: I only just heard those now. That's way too much for me to remember. That's um, my favorite sorting <laughs> device. So, so, but you're gonna have you're gonna have a a subject that I'm gonna give to you, and then you're gonna give the point to the original or to the remake. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? So, all first right. of all, the first subject for everybody is in general the script, the adaptation itself. Uh, adapting Stephen King's book. Hmm. You can have your own reasons. You can give it to whatever you want. There will be no judgment here. Andy, what do you give the point to for the script? The adaptation to the original or to the remake?
2: As far as it matching the book?
5: Whatever criteria you want. You liked it (laughs) better. It matched the book better. Whatever criteria you want. Okay.
2: I read the first hundred pages of the book.
1: (laughs) 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 confession time <laughs> and
2: I, you're every man th- this is this gentlemen. is this, this is weird but this is how i judge the adaptations because i've only read that much of the book was the cars that the characters drove up in were very much the same cars that were in the book but <laughs> i like the updated station wagon from Pet Cemetery, wow. 2019.
5: <laughs> All right, so you're gonna give it. You're gonna give the point to the remake solely yes. on the basis of the vehicles. I, I like your thinking. I like your thinking. Did you All see right. that
4: clown, though, y'all? <laughs> <laughs> All
5: right, Blake, you are up, my friend. For the so, script itself, what would you give, the original or the remake?
0: So am I. So am I. Just saying, the point goes to this. Per, this one, or do I have to explain
5: myself? Uh, you can just say the point if you want to, but you have explanation okay. time if you desire it.
0: Okay. Well, that's, that's actually really hard because, because I would almost split the point, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll pick one or the other. Here, So here's the thing. <laughs> tone and atmosphere. I think the remake wins. Um, okay. That I, I think it captures the tone of the book, the best of the two. I think as far as character development and actual dialogue, I think 1989 wins it. So ultimately I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna show my card a little bit here. I'm gonna go with nineteen eighty nine on this.
5: Gonna go nineteen eighty nine. Okay. Yep. All, right. Mm. all right. All right. No nice. problem. Fair fair discretion there. Um, all right. So Ian, you're up, my friend, uh, on the script, the adaptation itself.
4: Yeah, nineteen eighty nine.
5: Nineteen eighty nine. Oh boy, there's no because hesitation there. You're like no, the eighty nine. Because,
4: because Fred Gwynn.
5: Oh my gosh! Well, but oh hey, no, 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 no. You're, no, no, you're addressing no, no, script. You're addressing yeah. script. Yeah, yeah, I'm addressing. Yeah, addressing script. That is, but hey, he can have his own justice. Okay, that's all fine. right. <laughs> but no, I no, just so wanted because, to make sure the rules I are clear know,
4: because I know that Stephen King crafted this script with Fred Gwynn as the mouthpiece of Judd Crandall.
5: That is true. Actually, he did have Fred Gwynn in mind. Okay, Boom. so uh, yeah.
4: all right, so Nathan Rouse, yes.
5: what would Reed you lackey. give for the for the script? The original or the remake?
3: Um, I'm going for the remake. Uh, Ooh. Because <laughs> I actually think... Now, it's really funny. There's a whole sub-conversation that could be had here about how the remake feels a bit fan y But I do think True. from a pure stripped construct stripped what that's that's from fiction right right from a pure script construction standpoint i think the new one is much more streamlined and direct and organic in its telling of this story yes. um we're not we're not unnecessarily jockeying between a bunch of different locations like Rachel back at home Rachel back in uh, Chicago or whatever so I actually watching the new one for for the faults I might assign to it um, I thought it was a much more uh, appropriate to film version of the story
5: interesting okay well I uh, am gonna give my point uh, pretty firmly to the original the 1989 Um, I feel like it adapts uh i think it understands more the heart of the novel itself and before we move on to the next category let's talk about that novel for a minute um so okay have we all seen the documentary the stellar documentary unearthed and untold the story of pet cemetery have we all seen that documentary it's available on prime listeners
3: if you not not in its entirety but yes a good bit of it
5: so, Didn't uh, know it existed. <laughs> <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> never man.
4: Yeah. This inform, this
3: information has been quite available to you for some time. <laughs> <laughs> <Andy>. <laughs> it's
4: just like old times.
5: So, uh, so basically, like uh, you know, they go into a lot of details there. But one of the things I really enjoy about the story of how this book came to be is how much of it. I mean, King is pretty open about the others of his books and where the inspiration for them came from. But this one is rooted in a lot of actual things that happened to him so the the actual misspelling of pet cemetery that exists near his hometown in maine um the actual incident where he had to run and narrowly catch his son owen from running into the road and being hit by a truck like that happened the the entire exchange where they lose the family cat and his daughter uh is upset and says the line uh, God can have his own cat, and she's like mad, and and she says, you know, God can have his own cat. Why do you have to take mine? Like all of those things are actual things that happened to him, and as a result, as I'm sure probably most of you know, the the book itself was deemed by he and his wife to be unpublishable at first. Had you guys heard this story? Did you yeah, I heard it
2: was unpublishable.
5: Yeah, they basically said that um, he had gone to he had gone too far with this one that this was too dark, too heavy. And uh, do do any of you guys know, I'm sure our listeners may or may not, but do any of you guys know or remember the story of how it actually came to be published and why it got published?
4: Well, he switched publishers.
2: For a contract?
5: Yeah. That's exactly right. Yes, that's exactly right. So he basically was breaking ties with his previous publisher, Doubleday. And when he was breaking ties with them, they basically had not been paying him a large number of royalties. And so they figured out a way to, okay, we will pay you what we owe you, but instead of just cutting a check and getting nothing for it, why don't we pay it for you in one lump sum and you give us another book? Well, he didn't want to write another book for them. He wanted to move on to his new publisher. So he had Pet Cemetery kind of tucked away in a drawer, and he just basically threw it at them. Like, here, publish this. That's fine. Uh, because they had previously rejected it. He had submitted it to them for publication, and they had rejected it and so then this time around they basically like dug in on ooh king is scaring himself and king didn't want this <laughs> to be published and all this other sort of stuff and of course it was like a big runaway hit but anyway that's that would count as our trivial bits section let's move on let's move on back to the game you guys ready <laughs> yep ready <laughs> okay so so uh, I want to win <laughs> for this for this pool of people for this pool we uh, officially the script points uh, it's, it's the winner is the 1989 original film. That's, uh, that's the winner in the scriptor, uh, section. So the next category is, uh, Blake, you might, uh, you might've spoken to this already, but we'll come okay. to you second. Um, this is the general direction and production, the general, uh, aesthetic tone, uh, all of that in the piece itself. So not purely the adaptation, but just how well did it capture the tone? So Andy, I'm going to go to you first. Um, I'm gonna going to go in that same pattern all the way around. Where, what would you say for the general overall production and direction, the original or the remake?
2: Well, I didn't like the original um, right. because it just is too old for me. <laughs> 1989. I just, I don't remember it. Okay, I just don't know. That's when my wife was born. <laughs> um but um we're, I don't we're not gonna fall we're not we're not gonna pay
1: too close attention to those two statements next to each other. <laughs>
2: My um I really like the tone in the production of um of the remake. The remake was dark and grainy, where I thought the first one was very bright and had a lot of light in it, if that makes
5: sense. Yeah, no, yeah, I think I think that's accurate. Um I agree. All right, so Blake, you kind of already tipped your hand. Uh, talk, talk a little bit about this direction, production. Which would you give it to?
0: So I would still, I would still say, like, so I would almost split this point as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Boo! Well, no, Boo. no, no. There, there are certain things. There are certain things that I will land pretty heavily on. But it's just like so, Church the cat. So here's here's the thing. <laughs> Like while I enjoyed the the darkness and the tone of the new film, I thought that their u- their use of quick cuts and edits was way too much. Like they mm-hmm. they used it to the point where it was, it was almost like I I got can I got you give tired some examples or like, an um, example, Blake? I'm trying to think off the top of my head uh, the moments. Oh, okay. Um, I think it's so it's 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 more about how they approach the jump scares uh, mm. because. For this story, they use a lot of jump scares, and I was kind of surprised by that. I was expecting a little bit more of a of a slow tension building.
4: Yeah, and mm.
0: there was more jump scare than I was expecting. Um, but whenever you're trying to do jump scares, you almost have to do quick edits because that's kind of the whole point of of jump scares. You're trying to get a yeah. quick cut uh, to to a to an image or to a uh, person behind you or whatever it might be. I don't have any specific off the top of my head, but there were certain elements of the technical directing I was not as big of a fan of. Um, but the old one has just as many problems directing-wise. Um, mm. But I think, once again, I'm going to give it to the 1989 simply because, once again, tipping my
4: hand, I like it a little bit better.
5: Gotcha gotcha all right, all right, Ian, you're up, my friend
4: um okay, i'm gonna say the uh twenty nineteen remake okay, um, and it's i i'm gonna say that because of the sheer audacity that it has to make significant changes to it 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 knows what the audience expectation is and yeah. then and then messes with us, takes it into. A different direction that I think is still like consistent is the thing, so it doesn't feel like a stupid change. Where mm. I, I don't know the the man in the, in the Iron Mask is D'Artagnan, you know, like that. That would be stupid. <laughs> like, but, but yeah, uh, yeah, it 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 seemed still woven from the same fabric. So it was interesting to see. That's such this.
3: a Timmy Baderman comment to make, right?
4: Here. Right. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I'm just telling. I'm telling the truth. The Windigo got me telling right. the truth. So yep. that's
5: right. Um, Oz the Great and Terrible. <laughs>
4: so <laughs> for for the for the weird direction that's willing to go um, for right now, I'm going to say 2019.
5: All right, all right. Um, Nathan, yourself. Read. me.
4: Um,
3: <laughs> you know, I, uh, I I'm with Blake in the sense that they are these are both pretty imperfect outings. Um, you know for i'm a big fan of jason clark i'm a big fan of john lithgow so from a casting standpoint i'm going to lean that direction i I apologize i don't know where the categories are going here so but from a production (laughs) direction standpoint for 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 what i will concede is a certain audaciousness to the new ones changes i can't tell what they amount to yet um and so hopefully this conversation will yield reveal some of that but but I do think the tone of the new one is a bit more in sync with what I would have expected from the from reading the text. Sure. Um, this is a random criticism. Maybe a random criticism. Uh, one of the things I love, and one of the only things other than Fred Gwynn that I love about the 89 version, especially once you watch the 19 version, is the location shot of the Micmac burial ground. -hmm. Um, it it feels. I mean, it's a real place. It's a physical place that is being filmed. Yeah, you know, in the real. And I, when watching the new one, I was like, "This sucks. I hate sound stages. This is so CGI and stupid looking." When they're (laughs) when they're out there, and hear me, like actually, there was a lot I appreciated about the new one, but that really stood out to me. Yeah, for as much as it sounds like I'm beating on it, I think the. 2019 for me kind of wins by a hair (laughs) in terms of just sheer production because i do think there are little touches i don't know if y'all picked up on this i loved where there's a shot i can't maybe it's after he encounters ellie at the actual pet cemetery and maybe she's left the scene i've only seen the film once now but there's a shot of judd in the pet cemetery by himself glancing at the deadfall yeah. And and it's little things like that, this will get more into some of my sort of notes of the story in general, that I really loved, then that's where I feel like some of the organic nature of the new one is a bit more kind of real from a character perspective than the original. So anyway, I will give it to the 19
5: by a nose. Oh, so you're giving it to the original by a nose? Okay. Nope, I'm giving it to 19. By oh, a nose. 19. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so 19, <laughs> not 89. Got it. All right. Re- so
4: use reverse psychology on you. <laughs> uh,
5: <laughs> it's funny because I, when I heard the words 19, I thought you were about to say 1989, and it just, oh, it, it oh, didn't, oh, 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 gotcha. Click for me. But okay, so um, all right, so I am gonna give overall production and direction to the original, um. I, so it's I really feel funny. like there's
3: a sharks and jets Sort of thing starting <laughs> it's, I, so, so here's the, so here's it's the funny thing about rumble. it so I'm,
5: I'm going to announce the winner Before I sort of like skewer all of this So the winner of this, according to this little pool Is the overall tone, direction, production uh, The remake wins The 2019 remake wins um, But I, I must share a few of my feelings uh, About this uh, Just because it's the final on this point um, I really did not like Very much at all this new remake. Um, There were many, many things that I've heard praised, and I guess this just speaks to the subjective nature of what you take in and what you're expecting. A lot of things I've heard praised uh, are really elements that sort of bothered me. Like, there was a more ominous tone to this 2019 remake and I actually didn't really like that. I like the story having a bit of a brightness to it at top and then growing darker. I felt like this remake was darker, yeah. like, from the get-go. It was right out the gate this was ominous and I swear I'm, like, the uh, probably half the movie for me was a character walking slowly towards a creepy thing i feel like that was most (laughs) of what the 2019 remake was it's like a character walks towards the deadfall oh a character walks towards the hall a character walks towards the other house a character walks outside and it's all slow and it's all just like isn't this creepy and i just really started to get a little bored with that element of things and while there were some things that i'm going to praise about the remake the overall production and direction i really was not taken with ian i think you had pointed out that They uh, basically they pivoted away and that they were aware of what the cultural um, uh, sort of familiarity with this piece was Mm -hmm. and pivoted away from it, right? Right, absolutely, yeah. Well, for me, that kind of bothered me because, and maybe it was the mindset in which I went into the film, but for me, I was sitting there and felt like this. Um, So it's interesting and actually a bit encouraging to hear that somebody else saw the same thing and thought it praiseworthy because it just helps me to maybe want to revisit it at some point. Because I felt like with all those touch points, they were like, "Oh, I bet you think this is the moment at which Jud's gonna get his uh, his Achilles tendon <laughs> sliced," but no, we're not gonna do it right now. And then, yeah. there was, you know, "Oh, I bet you think this is the moment that Gage is gonna." No, no, we're gonna do something different. And it just felt a little uh, pedestrian to me. It felt a bit hmm. manipulative that they were like, a- almost to the degree where I felt like this version of the film, 2019 film, that they were not only sort of aware that viewers might be familiar with the 1989 version, but that they were in some cases dependent upon it for the moment. Yeah. Maybe a rewatch will soften a little bit of that for me. But that first time through, I was like, guys, like, well, that's
3: kind of what I was referring to when I said it can feel a little like a fan fiction version Mm -hmm. of the Ah, story. It's like, it's, it's like, because, you know, and I, I, I do think, you know, you're right in summarizing the points as they've been handed out, but you know, there, there's, there's there's pretty intense weakness in both film versions. I think it's so funny. Reed, uh, this new film, this new iteration opens with a flashback, and I was like, "Oh, Reed's
4: gonna hate that." <laughs> <laughs> you know what oh. the funny
0: thing is? Is I actually thought that same exact thing when I saw oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so like, Reed. Well, nope, because not yeah,
4: Pod Rose.
5: <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was just like, I was sitting there. I was like, "Don't open with the ending." Like, come on. Well, it's when they're when they're opening over the landscape, and then yep. I see that the house is already. I'm right. There, I'm like, right. Oh, forget. Right. It. And forget then Jason it. Clark <laughs> says,
4: "Rosebud." <laughs> right. <laughs> well, hey. Oh so, Reeve, you know, I I totally agree. I I think that it is manipulative, and mm. um, I think that it's like a really. I, I think that they're trying to be like brutally manipulative, even but what i found myself feeling um with this iteration of pet cemetery is different from how i used to so i used to not like the lord of the rings films um because oh, okay. i was such a purist i was pissed off at things like um viggo mortensen's aragorn is tepid about the possibility of like kingship you know he doesn't want it oh, he doesn't right trust right. his lineage and I hated that. In In the book, Aragorn is like, yeah, I'm going to go to Minas Tirith and I'm going to be king. And that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And um, the sheer difference it just was like this identity <laughs> issue for me. It's like, no, absolutely not. And mm-hmm. it took a while for me to just give a chance to... Maybe it could be interesting if Aragorn is, uh, it, it is someone who is not sure that he's up to the task that this is just another disaster in a long cycle of disasters. That can be an interesting idea that does not forgive all of Peter Jackson's (laughs) changes to Lord of the Rings. But I, I guess, um, I thought, okay, this is very clearly, um, choice after choice is not kind of an accidental, like, Oh, that's not what I expected. They, it's like you said, they are definitely thinking right now you're waiting for Judd to get his Achilles tendon sliced apart. Um, it is unmistakably there and then it's delayed and it gives you that hope you know like like me when i'm five and i used to watch jaws and i kept hoping this time quint hold on you know and he never holds mm. on he always gets devoured and it, I, I guess i was but I think, but willing I think to this give is that a chance
3: I, I think it's you know, we're all circling similar ideas here. I, I, the word I would use of the new, one, I, I do think it's pretty self-conscious. I mean, I think it's and mm-hmm. not in a positive way. I, I am with you on that read. I think, I think I don't. And, and maybe again, maybe our conversation here will yield some fruit, but it was hard for me after watching it to know, okay, as ballsy on its, on the surface, as pivoting from gauge to Ellie can seem, I can't tell, what it really adds to what Pet Cemetery is truly in essence about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that's, that's a troubling takeaway when, okay, are you just making these pivots to be, because you're like, oh, what can we do that's different and different for different sake is never because like, you know, leave it to Ian to spend five minutes in a conversation and bring up Lord of the Rings. <laughs> um, but <laughs> you know, what I, what I'll give kudos to of those is like, those changes were not half-hearted, and there's a there's an argument that could be made. I'm not necessarily making it. I haven't done enough research into the directorial and 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 story construction process of this new version, where some of these feel like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we did this different than the original? And that's not right. That's ultimately not going to amount to a whole lot of things. Now, I'm I'm throwing a, a pivot here while some of you may be sitting on ideas. I think there's the change. Some of these changes are almost enough validated by the bathtub scene with Lou and Ellie. That is an insanely creepy moment that is very effective and might have been extremely effective in a better version of this film. So Mm. I don't, I don't disagree with the notion that, you know, honestly, I hated the flirt with Gage in the new one getting hit. I was like, yeah. okay, yes. all right. Now that pisses me off because it's <laughs> like you're, you're not, there's a difference between, okay, we're making a conscious production choice because an older actor is easier to work with for what we want to do in telling the story. That That is one line of thought behind making some of these changes. But mm. when you do something like Oh no, gauge is running out. Even though all the marketing has shown me he's not going to be the one to die. And oh, he snapped it. like, okay, now you are being intentionally manipulative in a way that makes me not trust you. Um, mm. And that's that's an unfortunate place to feel as a viewer and as a enjoyer of this story. Anyway,
0: yeah, yeah. If they'd really sure. wanted, if they had really wanted to do something that would have wowed everyone, they should have killed them both.
3: <laughs> Jeez, done Blake.
0: Done same <laughs> I'm, no, I'm saying like he's a what, nihilist, that was the right? Thing he's a nihilist. I nihilist. Not. No, no, I'm saying, like, what is the one thing you would not expect going into that right, cemetery? Right. Like, and the fact that you knew from the trailer that she was going to die, and you knew from the original that Gage dies, what's the one thing you would not expect going into this film? for, the, for, them, for them both, both oh. to The Spanish English. That would be... That would be... I would've, I would've, yes, it would have been, been was horrifying. That? I'm not saying it would have been a good choice. I'm just saying... <laughs> but it would have been, been pretty be, gutsy. If they were going to be manipulative <laughs> and be gutsy... That's the way this would have gone.
4: The thing so, yeah. is that I'm not sure. Yes, but
3: even... uh, but it, but it's hard. It's hard to walk away from this iteration feeling like God bless them. That the 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 crafters of this version are smart enough.
4: But that's, to but, kn-
3: to know yeah, what to do yeah. with that choice. But like, that's my, but that's my. When you say that, movie. it's like, well, let's just have all the cast of characters run out into the street after but, they, they <laughs> all the, get the hit, the hit is, by the truck. The problem, you know.
0: But the problem with <laughs> it is that all these characters are wasted from the beginning like that yeah. so that's that's my biggest problem is that like I I ultimately don't care about any of them like from the beginning I, you they're they're that. so traumatized and they're so wasted in the sense that there is no development like they pretty much stay wasted the whole film, and then it goes from bad to worse. Well, and that's okay. End. So, Reed, do, that's...
3: You wanna move, do you want to do you want to move into a new co- uh, column, or, yeah, or are you yeah, enjoying? We this? might want to. No, we well, wanna... well, I'm I'm absolutely
5: enjoying it. I think Ian was trying to break in a couple of things. Ian, did you have something else? I was to add trying to that? stifle that, Reed. I was trying to stifle it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll that was really apparent.
4: No. Yeah, I'll I'll be super brief. I'm I'm to be Baderman anyway, so I got to deal with that. <laughs> um, so, uh, I guess I would just say that, you know what what I. What I gave my vote to the 2019 for isn't really indicative of me thinking that it's, like, objectively better. I I don't think that it is. Um, And even when I praise its, like, audacity, I have the much-dreaded scare quotes around it. Um, I totally agree that... um, I think that it is lesser by a hair. I totally agree that it is not character-driven. So I guess what I like is that for what I enjoyed was that this was an expensive experiment with being a tone poem in the uh, second half where it kind of just becomes this uh, like allegro that explores uh, some images. Um, Mm. But it stops really being about the creeds and Judd Crandall, whom I know from the 1989 version. And it's more like, well, these pieces are set up on the board already. Let's let's film a couple sequences that make you feel really uncomfortable in poignantly painful ways. And yeah. it's an expensive experiment. Um I spent eight dollars to see it. But I thought that it was a I don't know, a worthwhile experiment. I'm not gonna remember it for long. I don't think that it's exceptionally noteworthy. But yeah. maybe it was maybe it was worthwhile as a one off. I don't mean sure. to give it high praise at all.
5: Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. I yeah. think that's fair. Well, um moving into the moving into my next little category, and there are six of these, so this is number three. <laughs> so moving into the next category is old uh old Judd Crandall on that you know, talking about that road and going down <laughs> that run. going down going down to that that Those, pet those damn trucks, right. Lewis. so <laughs> That's right. So, um, all right, so which iteration, and it does not just have to be about performance, but can be, like, which iteration, which version of Judd, because there's some distinct oh, come differences. On. <laughs> uh, well, go, go ahead. So, so, Andy, Andy, pipe in. Which which version of Judd do you prefer? Uh, old, old original, Fred Gwynn, or remake, John Lithgow?
2: Of course, John Lithgow. All right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um... <laughs> Play, no, played right to type from, <laughs> from from what i read in the book judd was supposed to be like a dad character yeah and john lithgow didn't feel like that for lewis yeah, um definitely. he felt like he was just they he was just a weird neighbor who was there but like you could tell that um 1989 judd like cared about the family Invested mm-hmm, in yeah. Gage, invested in them, and was just a more he. I would say that the 2019 lacked a caring character. Yes, it really did. But yeah, and but in 1989, there were a lot of caring characters, and Judd was one of those. Yeah,
5: yeah, not very well said, Andy. I uh, yeah, I agree with you not giving my point early. But Blake, how do you feel about it? Uh,
0: well, first off. I love John Lithgow. Um, I don't feel like he was given anything to do anything with in the remake. And yeah. so, like, he was pretty much washed from the story, in my opinion. Mm. Um, like, even his most uh, iconic lines from the book that he says in the new one fall flat. Because yeah. Yeah. there's we have no investment in him, And so, um, so, while I love John Lithgow, and I think if they'd written him more into the story i would it might have been a little bit more of a draw i'm very much deeply fred
4: gwen on this one
5: gotcha ian where do you fall
4: oh one hundred thousand percent fred Gwynn. he sure uh, sure he absolutely leans into being the father that lewis creed hadn't had and just oozes affection and compassion in in his vocal delivery, the way he looks at people, like everything about mm-hmm. him, so clear that he cares deeply about this family. And I I won't trip over myself to defend Lithgow. I I think he's fine. It's just that I I I don't know if it was like maybe he can't be warmly affectionate in that same way. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know. I think Gwyn I, I think uh, Gwyn could have taken what was in the twenty nineteen script. And would have been Judd Crandall. Um, yeah. But yeah. there's just, it's a night and day difference. Lithgow is just, like Andy said, he's just the weird guy who happens to be across the rud. And it's not even a <laughs> rud. It's not even a rud. You know, there's no, uh, give me a rud.
0: But yeah, I've seen him play the that, that kind of character in like Interstellar and things like that. I know he can do it. And so part of me wants to blame it on the writer. And and not really making the the lines or the the character development happen for him to actually embody that part because he can do it. I've seen him play that role. I mean, Harry and He's the hit that point where that hit that age where he plays that role quite often nowadays. Um, and so I've seen him do it. I know he can do it, um, but for whatever reason he didn't in this time. So
5: yeah. Um. Well, what about for you, Nathan? Uh. Well,
3: I mean, I think, uh yeah, pure performance. There's no question whatsoever um, that Fred Gwynn wins. But I, I will stand by the notion that I think that the Judd of '19s version is a better motivated, uh, is is a more, more clearly motivated iteration to do the things. That the character of Judd does than the Fred Gwynn. I mean, again, Fred Gwynn wins night, day, on into, you know, eternity for performance. There's no getting around that. There's no even question mark associated with that. But, and, and, and this goes a little bit into other, other sort of uh, architecture of the story that I found. And and maybe even with the book, find a little frustrating um that is knowing knowing what Judd knows, I think the performance the, the motivation, the the trajectory of roping the creeds into this is better realized in Lithgow. Um I think it makes sense to me that uh when Ellie and you know invades his home and is talking to him that now he has a stronger impetus for suggesting church's burial there because now he has a connection to ellie in a way that i don't you know in the original story it's oh, oh your cat's dead here let me take you up here it's like you know we we don't really get that level of underpinning that i think the new one does i mean the new one's very deeply flawed but i i really appreciated some of those uh your questions seem to be more in line with performance though so i'm gonna go with fred Gwynn.
5: Um, I well then I apologize because it was actually more just like the representation of the character oh, okay. of Judd Crandall. So it sounds like if it was if I were to reframe it that way, like no, just which film best represents the character of Judd Crandall? It sounds like you'd give it to the remake. I
3: would. I would highly consider that. Yes.
5: Okay. So, well, uh, consider it. Give <laughs> Give me a
3: point.
1: <laughs>
3: well, I mean, but I'm but in but in summation, the you know like, uh, okay. Well then, did you split Blake's earlier no. when he split no, points?
0: Because I, I, I always picked 1989 all three. I, I oh. the first two categories, I was kind of, I was like by a hair. It was 1989. Judd is very much pro 1989 without any doubt. No, Judd, Judd was okay. the weakest the most. Okay. Well, then, I'll do, it, then, the I'll,
3: then I'll do it this way and I will, I will go against the grain here because that's my Enneagram. But, um, <laughs> I think there's no question that, uh, as a character on screen and a charismatic presence, Fred Gwynn wins, uh, just because of his performance and him as a performer. But I personally think there's a distillation of the story presented in 19 that makes a bit more narrative sense from a construction, story construction standpoint where Judd in that iteration i understand more of the things he's doing than in the original as much as the original just feels like a a cut and paste adaptation of the book
5: yeah anyway i hear that
4: i hear that yeah
5: and i i I will say that like one of the interesting things about the remake so i'm i'll just cut to the chase i'm i'm the original on this i uh yeah I'm, i'm not only for fred gwynn but just for the for the adaptation of the Judd character. Andy had pointed out he's like a dad figure. I really feel that in in Gwen's interpretation of the character. One of the things about Crandall in the nineteen in the two thousand nineteen uh remake is that he feels very much like just a creepy individual in a couple of places. Totally. Um, when he's like watching Ellie go down there and like smoke. And the, even the, the way we're introduced to him, the way we're introduced to him in the book is he runs across the road. Gage, who doesn't take to strangers, takes immediately to Judd, who pulls the stinger out, you know, and, and he's like, he's very, very warm and engaging right from the beginning. Right. Uh, and in this one, there's there's sort of this thing to judd the character that I I think it was Blake who said that it's kind of the scripting and the the writing. Um, I definitely feel like John Lithgow, who is uh, eminently capable of pulling this off, I think was probably tilted and leaned towards, hey, do it this way, do it this other way. Um, And I do feel like the 2019 understands better that Crandall was like, pulled into doing this thing that he regrets it and was pulled into it. Um, the 1989 one, uh, it it feels a bit more like Judd is just sort of like uh, I, he thinks about it very quickly and he says, okay let's do this and now it's too late to go back so I'm not going to do, you know, so we we won't talk about it, it's a secret thing um, but I will say, oh man the the delivery of some of his lines, particularly you know, a man's heart is stonier is just it's like, Stony, I, er- I, I hear it uh, yeah, I, I I hear it in the book, or I read it in the text, and hear Fred Gwynn's voice. Totally. That is indelible yes. in my mind. Like I'll I'll never be able to get that out. And that's just a detriment that John Lithgow was never going to quite over overreach. Um, but uh, but I do hear some of the comments about like it, oh, this was what I was going to say. The 2019 gave me an interesting pivot in a feeling about the character in the reading the book and in watching the 1989 version. I feel. Devastated is the wrong word, but I feel very crestfallen when Judd dies. So when he sure. goes, yeah, yeah, I feel yeah. crestfallen. In the 2019 remake, no fault to John Lithgow, but I was like, yeah, kill him. Like he deserves this. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, because because he, I mean, he really did just like like he's a he's very much in this like he's a he's a a helpless character in it. He's pulled into these things and drags Lewis Creed's family into it. Um, In this that's like you know yeah he's looking out at the deadfall and he's not transparent about what's what's taking place and then is is all and there's a weepy scene in the 89 version as well that that can be can be seen as a bit abrupt and a bit too much too quickly. Um, But when Fred Gwynn portrays the idea about like, I think I may have I think I may have killed your boy, you know, like it's it kind of for me, it kind of touches my heartstrings a little bit because I'm like, oh, man, that's you know, like you feel that this character feels the weight of what he's done john lithgow's version of it just feels somewhat helpless like i don't know what i'm doing i don't know how to be you know like i, I don't know why i did all of this stuff and and that to me just fell a little flatter um but, but uh, see i
3: wonder i wonder if I, I wonder if a a more distinct performance because what you're describing I, I mean this is me and my reading of the text which which you know we we may get around to uh, you know addressing some of these things What you're describing in terms of your interpretation of the Lithgow feels more honest to the text. And in the sense that a problem, this is, this is a Nathan take on the book Pet Cemetery. Something that I think is disappointing, if you will, about the text is it feels like it lets the characters off the hook for their terrible actions. I mean, uh, And, and I, and so from that standpoint, they, the book sort of creates this sort of, uh, um, arrow effect. This, this is all just happening because of the pull of the Wendigo's power, uh, that, that compulsion. And so, so there's a way in which I do think the, the Lithgow iteration, if not performance, not the performance is a more true imprint of of the text i i and and hear me like it may sound like it i'm sincerely not fighting that i think because because i do think it's just a passable performance it's fine it's just kind of on the page and it pales utterly to the to the gwen performance i just think the interpretation of the character uh is a bit more honest to what is happening in the in the prose well
4: story anyway i i'm i'm there's a lot of ways where I'm with you, and I guess what I feel like, I know that we're we're gauging uh, between 1989 and 2019 versions. As I really consider it, and having just reread the book, I feel like we almost dialectically need both in order to get at what mm. is in the text of 1983 Pet Cemetery, where we need the sunniness and the warmth and uh, the Fred Gwynniness and Dale Midkiffiness <laughs> of 1989, and we also need all these characters who are utterly wasted and exhausted, and and the nihilism of 2019, and we need both responding to each other to get at the surplus that is in the text. Yeah,
5: yeah. yeah.
0: When 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 I wrote my review for the the new one, that's what I, basically what I said is if these two adaptations had made a baby it probably would be the perfect <laughs> adaptation because there's, there's elements of the new one that I think are very fitting to the prose uh, or the text. Uh, but there are so many things that just made me so angry and at that, uh, that I, I prefer the old one, but I can see the, the value to some of the vision and some of the, the tone of the new one. And so yeah. like, I, I really would like to see a version that captures elements of both films
3: Sure. This is a, this is an in the moment question, but, and maybe something to ponder and and circle back around to in a couple of minutes. But I think, I, you know, it's one of those cases where Gwen is too good. Like he, mm. any performance Preach. of that character in the future is, is, is going to pale to his delivery right. and, and, and mannerisms. And so I wonder something to maybe think about, I don't want to put anybody on the spot necessarily, but like, is there anybody you can think of, uh, that in current, you know elder statesman of hollywood or even you know on the periphery of of the industry you're like you know what who would have been a really awesome you know following in that gwen tradition was this person so I, I just be kind of curious if we if we had any thoughts related to that but we can move into the next column if no one has any immediate responses
5: you know well I, i'll say i don't this have an answer I, I really don't have an answer well i'll say this and because i don't think i did say it before and then i'll move it I'll, I'll with permission move us into the next column just for brett for time's sake um but i would have picked john lithgow i think that's hilarious. i think john lithgow was a was a wonderful choice i mean when yeah. i saw him at, in the trailers i was thinking he's he's a great judd crandall and then was left very disappointed. Again, uh, I think it's the fault of the writing and the directing, and probably just the the choices that he was tilted towards in uh, in the character. Um, that I think there were just there was a very uh, a, a recalibration of that character that I didn't uh, appreciate as much. And it wasn't purely purely Fred Gwynn's fault. Um, I do agree with you, Nathan. It's like it is one of those performances that is so indelible now. Right. Once you right. see it, it is it, it is very, very hard to buck anything else against that. But I think if anybody could have pulled it off, yet John Lithgow has this really capable quality of being very uh like balancing warmth and menace. And we've seen that in a number of, of his earlier performances. So I think I think he had a real shot to do it. And the script just didn't leave him the room for that. Um, but I will, uh, I will tilt us on. I have three more. Uh, the next two may be a bit more conversation, but the last one will be brief. Um, so the next one that I've got is uh, the the plot point, and or character, and or interpretation or iteration of Zelda, Rachel's sister. Uh, which would you? Which do you prefer? The uh, presentation of and display of go backwards,
3: and, go backwards, mix up who's the order of response
5: you don't want to just go into the the little stream nathan no no i just meant like you know
3: <laughs> unless wow. unless reed you're just like bring up the 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 end here go ahead forget
5: it just cut that out wow wow do whatever you I want I'm you have alive. your section. You're gonna run, Nathan. Let me <laughs> oh, run. That. That. You're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm
3: sorry, oh Great <laughs> Wendigo of the Micmac burial ground. Please don't make, don't make me
5: yes, bring yes. down the hammer. Oh, it was the great
3: and terrible. Gage, Gage got too big for his britches for a second there. So, <laughs> um,
5: okay, so Zelda, Andy, who would you who would you give it to? Zelda. Um, the
2: 2019, I thought really brought her out. Um, and like there was, I with. Um, Rachel, she was more connected to that Zelda. It felt like she was just, it was unnerving and worrisome for her and she couldn't get past it. And so I like 2019's version of Zelda. All right,
5: Blake.
0: Uh, so I'm, I'm actually going to ride on Andy's, uh, something he said and that I think Rachel was the best part of the new one. Um, and I do I agree that, that she was tied to like, I, I think the way she portrayed her character and the trauma that she went through was significantly better than Rachel in 1989. But I also don't like the the parents in the 1989 one. Um, mm. So, but I will say in, as far as the indelible image of Zelda, the 1989 has it simply because in my head, <laughs> the slow shots, the slow long shots that they, that, uh, the the uh, director of 1989 one had of Zelda are so indelible and so terrifying in my mind that it's the quick jump yeah. the quick jump scares of the new one of Zelda that we get falling down the uh, dumbwaiter yeah um just don't quite have <laughs> the same effect uh, and so yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going with 1989 pretty
5: clearly on that one. So 1989
4: Timmy, on that one. Timmy Baderman's had it over there, guys, out in the corner. He's just like, <laughs>
5: "All right, Ian, let us hear. Oh, it. Man, let us have
4: falling it. down dumb waiters is one of my favorite things. Um, <laughs> right? Just, just some good old fashioned fun. Um, yeah, okay, yeah. Rachel's trauma is better in uh, is it's it's better portrayed in the 2019, but the uh, 1989 Zelda is where it's at, man. Like, that's just... Um, f- first of all, uh, the there's little to no aesthetic difference between the two versions. Um, then 2019 is essentially... Um, it, granted, I saw this once, but it seems to me that there's no great departure. It's just, hey, our template is the 1989 Zelda. And uh, yeah. the voice and... Just lines like, I'm going to twist your back just like mine, Rachel. Like, that's oh, that stays with gosh. you the rest of your life until you die. So, yeah, hands down, <laughs> yeah. 1989
5: Zelda. All right. Nathan, you're up. It's funny. You're
3: zoning in on some, some real specifics that I have thoughts on. So, um, I mean, I think presentationally, 1989 Zelda is just – there's no, it's it's the Gwen to Lithgow sort of thing. It, there's no question, um, presentationally. I think uh, I actually thought the dumb waiter sort of moment in the new one was pretty daggone, you know, terrifying and and well, uh, well pulled off. I, I maybe on a number of issues of the new one and even some of the old one. I find Zelda utterly unnecessary uh Mm. and primarily in the new one less so but still possibly in the old one she is important to the text because you're filling 400 or 500 pages or however long this book is i listened to it on audio this time Um, and so you're you're kind of fleshing out just some some character arcs and motivations off from the main action but i watched this new one and I I got pretty energized by the last 20 minutes and this column may present itself soon in terms of some of the changes and once those ramp up. But to me, the story is not about Rachel and her trauma like that. That's not what this to me and in, in my interpretation of Pet Cemetery, um, I understand it's about death and the fear of it. And hers is manifest specifically through this very unique version of a trauma. But I watched the new and I was like, I, I don't. They they have not made me comprehend that that it matters for me to incorporate this into this story. The story is about parents losing a child and the grief attached to that. Now, yes, you can layer upon it things like a conversation about grief and our own personal traumas and how that informs. I do appreciate the sort of afterlife note in the new one. But I watched the new one and I thought for all the presentational effectiveness of the 89 Zelda which sort of earns her position as valuable in that version i found it utterly immaterial and just didn't care um mm. you know for for her inclusion i think as much as i liked and have 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 said several times already there's a streamlinedness to the new one that i like um, right. i think you can i think you can chop zelda right out of there and not lose what what makes the new one effective i don't think you lose anything but it's fodder for a Um, bunch of jump scares
4: nathan come on yeah yeah (laughs) well
3: we just and 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 for those of you who are following along at home we just came off of 10 episodes of the haunting of hill house where you've got a much more muted take on the quote-unquote jump scare facet of horror and i think maybe that's just maybe i've maybe i've matured uh in my horror consumption to just be like, well, I need something a little more than just you you trying to startle me. Startle um me. Yeah. You know. so you're
5: giving the Zelda to the original,
3: right? Yes. Yeah. Sorry for the sort of the obfuscation there. Yes. <laughs> no, no, that no, point okay. that but point no, is no, squarely no, to the I, original. I totally
0: agree with you. I, I think Zelda is could be pretty much tossed out on both versions. Um while I do like the Zelda image and the, the original, I really don't think she adds necessarily right. nothing but a scare to either one yes. so yes.
5: right right um and so for that reason actually so i'm going to go a bit against the grain i'm actually going to give zelda to the 2019 remake <laughs> and the reason i am is is solely because i feel like Everything that everybody's saying about the indelible sort of makeup effects on that was actually a male actor in right. uh, the 1989. Um, the the makeup effects that were on that are definitely indelible. Um, it is essentially a scare, but I liked the way that it impacted um, Rachel in general. Mm-hmm. I'll um, I'll have more thoughts to say on that in in uh, in just a few moments, but because of the impact it had on the character of Rachel and how that impacted the rest of the story, I'm gonna give the Zelda presentation to the 2019 remake. Although still the winner is the 1989 for Zelda (laughs) presentation. Um okay so um I have two more categories. This next one it it may be the last one that we have like extended conversation about. Um, But let's go ahead. Let's let's uh let's pick an ending. Let's pick an ending that we like or that we uh that we think is uh, is stronger better whatever now granted uh the book's ending is the same as the 1989's ending almost verbatim um but uh the 2019 does make some departures so andy again i'm coming to you first uh pick an ending the original or the remake
2: Okay, so I didn't make it all the way through the nineteen eighty nine. My gosh! Wow! You don't know cow. how the nineteen eighty nine movie ends. That is his. But, but I, but I, Wiki, I Wikipedia it. And <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it, guys? Uh, I yeah, sure I, I wasn't gonna say it, but yes, it does. <laughs> I was trying to. T- I was taking Andy's spot. I can't help it.
2: <laughs> and so, I would have to say that the one that i saw is the best ending so ni- 2019 <laughs> baby <laughs> bringing right. it home can we tell about the ending what we like oh or by all means spoil yeah spoil everything. i yeah. i loved that like they were all dead and then they came back and gage was in the car not sure of what he was going to do like, cause in the reality, is that baby gonna drive off? <laughs> and <laughs> you know, oh my gosh. we know that kid's screwed. But it gave us a little bit of a hopeful vibe when they just cut away. But you never know; Gage could have drove off. <laughs> there was nothing hopeful about that ending. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Um. All right, uh, Blake, pick an
0: uh, ending. 2019, easy. Uh, it's, okay. It's, I I liked it better than the book, the 1989. I thought it was a brilliant ending. I just wish there was something more leading up to
5: it. i hear that I i'm I i'm i'm that. very
0: much uh, a fan of the uh the the very nihilistic mist kind of ending so ah, gotcha,
5: gotcha. <laughs> all right uh, ian picking in i'm
4: i'm I'm really torn because I think that it's interesting what the twenty nineteen uh does but uh i guess in the interest of i, I don't know being true or something. Um, I'll go with the 1989 one. I, I I guess I also like that it it connects back with uh, Judd actually says in the 1989 version, "What you own always comes home, Lewis. And then, oh, you know, we have Rachel returning at the end. Um, I think both are solid, but uh, to negate t- to try to negate Blake and Andy, I'll say 1989.
5: <laughs> all right, all right, Nathan, pick an ending. <laughs> um.
3: I think that ignoring the gauge fake out of the new one, it is a bold move to go with Ellie's as the, as the child who gets hit by the truck and is reanimated. Um, I do think there's a lot of really great just kind of horror imagery uh, attached to the new version. And I, I, I applaud the, sort of brazenness of the three of them surrounding the truck with gauge inside, then cut to black. But I think it is a, for what I appreciate about the story of Pet Cemetery, which is about the human consequence of terrible choice. I think the end of the original is a far more effective resolution. Uh, From that standpoint, the new one's a bit, the new one though, visually impactful is a bit more, uh, ephemeral—is that what I'm after? Just kind of like effervescent, it kind of fades. You're like, ah, okay, well, that was a cool choice, an image to leave me with, but yeah, it's not—it's not nearly as like, man, the things we do as people to ourselves and each other is really horrific, and I think that's much more exemplified in the original. Gotcha,
5: gotcha. I am—I'm uh, really torn about this as well because I feel like the ending of this new version is probably. It's one of the strongest ideas that I've heard about a way to sort of reimagine uh, an original, particularly a, uh, arguably a classic. Um, I'm going to stick with the with the original um, for right now, um, although I I'm more torn about this category than any of the others because I feel like the ending for the remake was very very strong. Um, so my final category. Uh, before we pivot into one last thing and then i'm going to toss the baton to nathan to take us uh, take us through the ne- next stage of our journey um, so uh my final category of pure like tallies is uh old old church old resurrected church so which which one we going to which we going to going to pick we're going to pick the old the old gray cat or we going to pick the new uh fluffy maine coon uh church <laughs> uh which which cat um really drives it really drives it home uh for you Andy Fluffy Maine Coon baby All right <laughs> Fluffy Maine Coon <laughs> All right uh Blake
0: I concur Fluffy Maine Coon <laughs> All,
4: right. All
5: right Ian FMC
4: <laughs> <laughs> Nathan
3: Um yeah I mean I could talk some more about it but the new one definitely definitely wins I do love like what this new one in idea gets really well in terms of the cool horror factor is you know the original you're hanging with gauge those last kind of five to ten minutes you know uh, for limitations of having a child a, a teeny tiny actor like that and all that sort of stuff i get it but the idea of this undead ellie hanging out traipsing around murdering folks with her little cat familiar as her you know, yeah. emissary is pretty badass, And so I really, yeah. and just visually, it's a much more interesting cat than the original to me.
5: I am fluffy Maine Coon all the way as well. That is the only <laughs> landslide victory that the remake got <laughs> that it is that. Yes. They, they got, they got church. If they got one better. thing, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so I have one more question for a round table for each of you, uh, but I just want to recap. So the original 1989 version wins on, Script adaptation, on presentation of Judd Crandall, on presentation of Zelda, and on its core ending. But the remake wins... On its overall direction and production, and the presentation of Church the Cat. So, so take that for what it will. Um, the next question that I have for you, and I'm actually Nathan will be happy about this. I'm actually going to reverse it. I'm going to go backwards because I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to give an answer to give everybody sort of an idea of what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that's like a win, lose, or draw. You only, for time's sake, just pick one. Because then we've got some other conversation to get to. But for time's sake, just pick one. I want you to pick one thing that you would definitively point out that we haven't already discussed, or maybe we've only mentioned it in brief, that you would say, okay, this version of the story gets this element better, and I recommend it for this reason. I'll go first. So for me, uh, what I would point to in this is I feel like the remake really captures the character of Rachel better than probably any version. I would say maybe even better than the book. If there was a character in the remake that I cared about at all, it would be Rachel, and uh, mm-hmm. because of that, I really I, I think some of that is what the, the actor brings to the role. I think some of that is the way that they sort of allow her to meditate on death and loss and, uh, you know, thoughts of the afterlife and all of that sort of thing. Um, So one thing that I would say uh, wholeheartedly, I feel like uh, the presentation of Rachel in the remake is something that that version wins over every other iteration that I have seen of the presentation. Love Denise Crosby. She's great. But I think that uh, that. That wins for that. Uh, Nathan, I'm coming to you next. Pick something that you think wins. It can be from any iteration and anything.
3: Jeez Louise. Um, <laughs> I I do love that you ended your note on Denise Crosby, ye of the Star Trek fandom. Um, oh, absolutely. Tasha, sure. tasha, tasha Yar. Yar. Yeah. yeah, even I knew that. Even I knew that. Um, man, I. Most of what I might have answered this with, I feel like I've touched on, something that that I actually think the new one does, interestingly, that even to my recollection, the book doesn't quite do, uh, which would mean the 89 version definitely doesn't do, is I really loved, right smack in the middle of this new one, how they recontextualized some of uh, Rachel and Lou's conversations about Exposing, uh, Ellie to death and that sort of thing. But there's a note in the new one that again, y'all can remind me if it's in other across versions, but, uh, where, where Rachel, I think makes a real direct question of Lou about the afterlife and he just says no. And, and so that's a really now was that just sloppy writing that they landed on something significant? I don't know, but it feels a real interesting step in a direction neither of the other iterations really take most of them seem more about the the loss on this side and what we do with it or about it whereas that that feels like an interesting step into hey my motivations for doing this or not are determined by what i think happens later so anyway i thought that was a really really interesting touch uh you know despite some of the weakness of the new one
5: Gotcha. All right, Ian, I'm coming to you next. Uh, pick one thing that you think like is the best iteration of this story from anything.
4: So I, I think that the 2019 captures, you know, King said, and this is what was publicized about Pet Cemetery, it's, it's the book he did that scared him most. And I think that the 2019 version captures this, um, I don't know whether to call it nihilism or um, I think I'll just stick with that. Because mm. we get a Lewis Creed who is utterly um i'm I'm rereading through Charles Taylor's a secular age now, and uh Lewis Creed is like wholeheartedly devoted to secularity types one through three, and his nihilism is the logical outcome of his commitments like intellectual yeah. and Um, I, so I, I love what Nathan just said. Like there's, there's a way where because of his training and his orientation to the world, given that there is nothing following this, the only thing to do is to, uh, try to bring back Ellie. Um, whatever, whatever that entails and whatever the consequences are, what else is there to do? And it cannot work. That cannot end well. And I think that whatever its flaws—and there are many—I will definitely go on record as saying there are several. Um, the 2019 one just captures um, the the hopelessness of death experienced in that way. Um The yeah. the, the, the the grieving of hopeless death.
5: Sure. Um, Blake, coming to you. Pick one.
0: Okay, so I'm going to say real quick pet cemetery, cemetery 2 is the worst thing I've ever seen uh, <laughs> Wow. consumed for this podcast. Um
4: <laughs> oh for this podcast. It's okay. yeah, oh, awful. Yeah,
0: for this podcast. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> hey Blake, uh, but, in case
3: in case listeners don't know this, re- restate what you just said. You're referring to a sequel that we have not yeah, sequ- referenced a so far. Yeah, to
0: the uh it's a 1992, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh Mary Lambert came back to direct it just like she did 1999. She did. Yeah. And it made me actually reassess the original one because it was so horrible. I That's was awful. like, "This came from the same person." So, <laughs> despite John Connor's best efforts, but I I do want to point out one specific <laughs> line that really struck me in the 2019 one uh, that that Lewis says uh, mm. when the proverbial crap is hit the fan. Preach it at, uh, towards the end is, and you'll have to probably... You know, bleep me out. But, all right. You know, right. Uh, God, why can't God have his own f- child? You know, or, mm, or something right, like that. Right. He says that point where he, he just like loses it. And at that point, I was like, in my head, I was like, they basically took um, the line about church and they gave it to Lewis. Yeah. And made it more powerful in that sense. And I actually think that's a really powerful point in the film. Um, I really. I think it could have been built up better in some ways, but it still hit me like a ton of bricks in that moment. And I was, I really felt that, that line, especially delivered at that moment in the film. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah,
5: I hear that. All right, Andy, bring us home. What's, what's one thing that you would pick from the first half of whatever you saw, whenever you saw (laughs) it?
2: (laughs) What is the, what is one thing that I'd pick? Well, um, I'm fixing to be a dad and when hmm. the first mm-hmm. one where Gage dies and Lewis does everything, like he's in his grief, his his um, father-in-law thinks he caused this, you know, they get into a fight at that, and everybody's pointing fingers and trying to say, you know, whose fault is this, whose fault is this? And ultimately, I think Lewis feels like it's his fault. Yeah. And I guess where I'm going there, going there with it is like, To be so sad that you're not able, not that you should move on from a child's death, but you're willing to go to any extreme to return back something that's so precious to you that you're willing to go to Mm, mm -hmm. a pet cemetery, you know, and not only are you, you're not taking a shovel, you're digging with your hands a grave for your child in hopes that it will come back to you um is is really resonant to me just recently with just with um you know coming up on being a dad is like how 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 do you react i mean is that something that i'm going to want to do if something happens to my kid am i going to try to keep it keep keep him it's a him not it um but am i going to do everything i can to to is it prolonging gage is suffering for him to come back after he's passed away mm. or is it is it something that i that i let god take control of and take my son where he needs to go mm. and so trying to go in with that of just like and my wife's in the medical field and she um works in the pick and so sees the quality of life of of mm. kids who um are on trachs who are on breathing machines and, and doing stuff and, you know, trying their best to stay alive. And some of them are vegetables mm. and knowing that, you know, these, this is like the life that they're living and, you know, you want to see them survive, but is it, do, do you trust? I don't know. Do you, this sounds kind of bad, but do you like trust in yourself, keeping your child alive when it's quality of life is nothing and you think that that's the best or is it the best thing to just let God's plan happen which may be mm. taking your child from you mm. um, and so that's kind of what that's resonating in my heart and what I've been thinking about with this
5: movie yeah, hmm. yeah I understand well Nathan I think that's probably a, a good, yeah, it good is. Uh, segue <laughs> to, to go right in uh, thank you Andy
0: yeah that's hmm. good
3: um uh, uh as the three of you know, having uh, been on this little, uh, uh, thing before with us, you know, we, we discuss in, in particular strokes, the material itself and then pivot into theme. So, um, I have been anxious about this conversation all day because I want there, there's my takeaways from the text, the the novel are, are, are very, um it's it's so weird the statement i'm about to make i even think king doesn't quite nail his own themes even though they're right there um this is this is a slight aside here but it's interesting watching this new movie um it felt like popcorn trauma if this makes sense um there's there's a version of this story that the mary lambert edition gets closer to though even it is freighted with a bit of melodrama in its execution where to me as as even andy just walked us right up to the the heartbeat of pet cemetery is about grief and loss and our inability to deal with that and i think of two two film illustrations that come to my mind when i think about versions of this I've seen done well in film. One is the movie Manchester by the sea, which is just oh, yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. Um. But the other one and up our alley in terms of this podcast and, and our mutual genre affection, honestly is Brad Pitt at the end of seven and mm-hmm. the choice. This is why, and, and it's come up a couple of times in this conversation, why I feel like uh, to a certain degree, certain iterations of this story, let these characters off the hook. Um, There's something fascinating about what Brad Pitt, his performance in Seven Telegraphs, and that is this character knows exactly what he is doing. And he's Mm -hmm. very keenly aware of the moral implications of his choice, and he moves forward anyway. And that's a really, that's why, to me, that performance is so powerful. Um, But I want to walk us into a a thematic conversation here uh if if all of you have your uh kleenex at the ready on on grief um you know i i'm gonna talk for a second but it's intended to be springboard it's intended to be a launch pad for thoughts uh you know i think reed would echo this if there's anything we want fear of god to be past just fun talk about scary movies it's it's the, it's the practical wrestling down of how we as people of faith deal with the horrors and the tragedies and the very real experiences that, that, that can afflict us. And so I, I really want at least, at least an inkling of that to be part of this conversation. Um, it's funny, I've been mulling this for some time because of Hill House honestly Mm. um hill house gave me plenty opportunity to bring some of these ideas in but i've intentionally waited for this pet cemetery conversation um just because i think there's it's it's kind of the main through line here so i'm gonna make this a little personal and then throw it all to you not for response to my story but for more you know rumination potential here um I've referenced obliquely over the course of fear of God, my own private kind of season of trauma and pain uh, of about five years ago. So unlike the creeds, I didn't suffer like a literal death around me, but deaths of a kind were involved um, in a way that I was not really positioned to speak of, to speak openly about. Uh, it was, it was a version of death and acute grief accompanied it um and if you've listened to fear of god for one episode uh you know generally speaking i'm a bit of an extrovert um well particularly speaking i'm a second child um and then i'm also a guy who fancies himself occasionally an actor and the point i'm trying to make is simply that i'm not a fan of silence and quiet and and not being noticed uh it is it is within me to say hey look at me um but in this deep season of grief i was experiencing there was a particular need that prevented me from speaking openly in ways that if I were acting purely selfishly, I might've wanted to. Um, and fascinatingly, in many ways, this was probably healthier than I would have understood at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and lots of ther- lots of therapy and uh, uh, unrelated to church experience, that community was lost to me. Um, the, the microscoping, as I would put it, close friendships down to but a few helped me weather that storm. Um, it helped me enter what Richard Rohr calls a second half of life type of newness. Um, now, so that's a bit of a groundwork here, but fast forward a couple of years, and I promise I'm going to let y'all jump in here. Um, a peer I went to high school with that I was friends with. Think, okay. So what we're mulling here is grief and 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 it's it's processing. So a peer I went to high school with that I was friends with on social media but we were not communicative beyond that it was it was what you know social media at its worst is which is just, oh I'm friends with this person but there's no real relationship beyond that. So this 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 woman I went to high school with as an adult now she and her husband lost a child. Um pretty much exactly what Andy just described. Um and it was sudden, it was tragic. And what was really weird about the days we live in as a society is I was able to watch over the course of days as dozens of people posted to her Facebook page things like, okay, well, now your child is in a better place or we are praying for you or let us know how we can help. And I had this real profound moment of clarity that as weird as it sounds, almost made me grateful for my own private pain a few years prior. Yeah. Um, there was a way in which these offerings of sympathy observed from afar felt so perfunctory. Right. And so, and, and I, I am understand I know that, I understand that it can sound like I'm being judgmental here, but the feelings were this lacked true depth and empathy. Right. Um, all I can do is reflect on how after a depth of suffering endured quietly that I would never wish on anyone, I experienced watching this peer's words of sympathy roll in so publicly. So that was what I was observing. And to kind of springboard us hopefully into the depths here, um, if affirmations of the most banal sort are all we have left as a church, are we not just? Grieving like those who have no hope as well. Mm. And what I want to sort of launch us into here is why are we so ill equipped for this grief? It may seem bold, but I want this conversation to be that, you know, like all of us in this conversation right now have, are maybe currently and have definitely experienced leadership in church settings. And there are people that we've been in contact with in those settings, and there are people listening to this conversation right now who are going through their own despair and deep pain and and platitudes will not get them out right, and what I'm interested in is just having a place to grieve our inability to grieve, yeah. And that maybe that's a starting place. I'm talking a lot, but I really want y'all to respond. Yeah. I just wanted to launch us into some of these thoughts.
4: Yeah. Hey, can I? So can I take that? You can.
3: That's you're here, aren't you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I, By I all just means.
4: I just mean. Um, I, 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 um, I lament so, so deeply, and so. At times, like, ragingly at how. I, I I know that I run the risk of having like this hobby horse that I'm just on, and that I rail against the same things again and again. But you know, I mentioned I mentioned like Taylor-esque secularity with Lewis Creed, but I bemoan the secularity of like low church evangelicalism that wants to view darkness and disruption and deep pain as these potential outliers that might figure into the past as like a um, an on-ramp to a testimony that we can give but then stays relegated to the past and is not characteristic of our experience in a world that needs redemption because if the world is in need of that if it is in radical need of rescuing then it cannot be hunky dory uh it, and, and it cannot be in this in these kind of like discrete packets um that comes all of a sudden you know oddly um here and there and comes to people that really we could say they should have seen that coming it is so pervasive and it it forms us into who we are, and we don't want it to, but there's no other choice. If you're going to be alive, you're going to suffer, and that will shape who and what you are, um, and even your relation to what has happened and is ongoing will continue that that shaping. And we do not have the communal and individual space to admit that that is kind of the norm rather than this weird, like I said, outlier, this hypothetical outlier that could happen. But instead, something like that is the norm, and how do we live with that, rather than um, being code fetishists that look to the manual to stave off that hypothetical outlier, how do we instead live with the fact And hold each other up. And that is not what we have done well at all. Because I think it's because it is almost entirely hypothetical. It is something that we are told that should be behind us. That should be at some time in the remote past and we're getting further and further away from it. And I see no evidence that that is the case at all.
5: I uh, I'd like to jump in if I could. Um, I think that one of the one of the biggest issues that has plagued I think all of humanity, cross culturally, particularly I'll, I'll pivot back into Christian theology in just a moment. But I think one of the things that has plagued all of humanity is this question of well, is this all there is, mm-hmm. and Um, one of the things that I have heard the the humanist argument say, well, the preciousness and fragility and brevity of the world that we're given is part of what makes it so important and valuable and part of what makes it it mean more. Um, I have always disagreed with that assessment of life, but naturally I would. I'm not a humanist. Um, so, I've, so I've always disagreed with that general philosophy, but I think still it ekes its way into our Christian theology in this rendition of of doubt and this rendition of trust that the power, whatever power death ultimately held, has been fundamentally undermined, and. Any grief that we encounter, any, any basic um, loss, uh, whether it's incontrovertible or whether it is um, you know, in physical space, emotional, mental, whatever loss we experience, um, I think that there is something we are compelled to cling to, and that is the hope of restoration and healing and renewal. And I feel like a large number of us simply cannot get down to the place to where we would agree that we actively believe that um, we would tout it. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm not saying that we don't speak it out, but I think that gets into some of what Nathan was saying is that then that translates into trivialities. Then that suddenly becomes simple, banal statements of uh, mere platitudes of well think of it like this or look at them as if you know uh they it, it's almost as if they come to defend as if they need to find some way to uh to defend the lord in all of the tragedy or the or the bad mm-hmm. things that have happened right. and something something that i've struggled with a lot is i've had so, so I'll, I'll pivot away from death for a second and there are griefs and loss that I've had before and that my my wife has had, and that our family has seen that were just of of a a non life and death nature. they were just disappointments, sometimes grave disappointments and sometimes tremendous griefs, loss of uh friendships, loss of certain situations or opportunities or whatever they were like those griefs just come, and we we converse a lot about. Well, I went into this thinking. At first, I was thinking, "Oh, the Lord's going to do this, and then the Lord's going to move in this way, and and uh, everything feels very hopeful, and it feels like this is just the alignment when everything's supposed to happen." And then, when you're trying to reassess backwards after it didn't really go the way you hoped it would, um, a lot of times I can find ourselves compelled to to defend the Lord in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that you know, there just you know wasn't wasn't God's plan, and something that I've said to. To my wife and something that I feel about this is I feel like I'm going to throw three very brief sort of theological statements uh, that I feel and I'm convicted about on the table. The first one is I believe that obviously God is real, that he pays attention, and occasionally that he intervenes. So that's the first one is I believe that, that obviously the Lord, the Lord sees and knows and occasionally he intervenes. My second thing is that we are, I believe, we are as human beings given the opportunity to choose uh, doorways, paths, options, that we are given the autonomy to select uh, what we want next to take place. So thirdly, I feel like sometimes we will uh, as people of faith march towards something believing that it is a moment in which god will intervene and in point of fact we find out after the fact that maybe that just wasn't one of those situations and i feel like whenever we are encountering one of those it is it is difficult for us to then just say like well i was wrong he that he he wasn't involved in that situation or if he was it was not in the way that i expected needed or wanted him to be or thought i needed him to be mm-hmm. um and and so then we we try to jump hoops around our own sort of misguided theology and we try to run circles around justifying things that really uh never involved him to begin with um you know that that wasn't that wasn't something that he was terribly interested in in the larger scheme of things uh, might have mattered to us, and I also believe that if it matters to us, it matters to the Lord, but I do feel like I have I should be more comfortable and sometimes try to talk myself into this, uh, being more comfortable and just recognizing, hey, that was a thing I wanted, and maybe it wasn't good for me, or maybe it just wasn't the right timing, or maybe it just was not something as part of the overall divine plan, uh, and so we infuse a lot of Faith language into something that really maybe needs to be more self-reflection and self-awareness. Is that making sense to everybody? Yeah. What I'm, what yeah, I'm scratching at, yeah. and um, and that's that's one of my big struggles in dealing with grief is in recognizing, uh, you know, I I, I don't have a problem, uh, with like hurling something of an accusation at God. I feel like he's he's secure enough as a divine being to handle it. <laughs> I don't feel he's going to get petty with me, you know? Um, but, but I can uh, sometimes recognize uh, my suffering has certainly not reached nearly the stature of Job, but Job was downright comforted when confronted with something that may sound a bit on the surface to be mean when the Lord basically says back to him, like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, you were... You were not here when I laid the foundations of the earth. You do not have the power to tell the ocean it can't move any farther. Well, um, You do not have any of those, any of those abilities. And, so, and Job was strangely comforted by just being repositioned in his station. Somebody was about to break in. Well, on the I, I,
4: and I wanted, to, I wanted to bring up Job right there because I think that there's a reading of the climax of Job where um, like God just kind of like dresses down Job the entire time. But you know like, in rereading it recently, um the way that God addresses job is significant, you know, like, okay, stand up like a man, and we will speak like that's that's an invitation of like a sort of equality, It's like, okay, stand up straight, mm, that's okay it. Yeah. Y- you and me we're gonna we're gonna talk, you're gonna listen right now. I've been listening to you this whole time, now you're gonna listen to me mm, and mm. and there's there's a, a parody there it's it's situational obviously job does not become a divine being but there's a there's a condescension um along with who is this when god says that that's that's not a sneer um the Mm -hmm. psalmist says who is the king of glory that 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 is that is not a a contemptuous thing uh that is part of the same invitation of god to job like I d identify your like okay, name yourself. You've named your complaint. Now you're you're going to hear me. And yes, the questions follow, but that's not a um that's not a remember you're a worm. Remember how uh worthless and stupid and small mm-hmm. you are. Um that's the this is above your pay grade, Job.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm
4: you you cannot get to the bottom of this it will have to be me who gets to the bottom of this because
1: mm.
4: you're not the one who set all this in motion so you cannot investigate the depths and get down to the 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 hitch of how all of this is terrible you you are going to have to uh put your repose into me because there is no other there's no other way to to handle all this and and that that again, I I really don't like that reading of the end where Job kind of just gets the riot act read to him, and then he shuts up. You know, it's it's just sheer heteronomy. Mm. It's like, okay, yeah, sorry, all right, Lord, I I won't pipe up again because that's not it. Right, because right. like God says, He's the one who has spoken truly. Okay, none of you have yeah. at all. Right, right, and. I, I think that that's deeply significant because, in line with what you're saying, read, uh, what a lot of us expect God's presence in the world to consistently or even exclusively look like is extravagant, triumphal power. And like we are we are in Holy Week right now as we are recording, and what this king's okay. activity and rule looks like is ignominy and suffering and that is the mode of God's presence that goes unrecognized by so many people who profess Christ as their savior and i believe that that is true that they that they are that they are professing him with uh truthfulness but his presence in the world is going unrecognized because it's not fireworks, it's not it's not a Roman triumph, it's not pomp and grandeur. It is being with those who are in unspeakable agony, who can see no end to it. And he is condescending to that level. And not metaphorically. Like, he is present in suffering as the one who gives himself up completely to the annihilation of the cross because that is historically what the cross does that is what romans use it for to remove all historical record of this human existence you are liquidated yeah from yeah
3: let me jump let me let me let me jump in Ian. yeah so you all of this is accurate and and appropriate and it is mildly ironically comical that yes we are recording easter week um about a story uh, about uh, the uh, reanimated undead, if you will. <laughs> but I, I, I do want to, I, w- I, I want, mm, You've you've gone wide. I want to try to bring us back yeah, a yeah. little more granularly. Um, I, I am curious. Uh, you know, Andy and Blake, when when the question is posed of why are we so ill equipped to to deal with grief, what what are some what are some practicals or some thoughts that come to mind?
0: Uh I think I think for me um if there's one thing that the western church has failed at within the scope of dealing with grief and tragedy in the world is that we've we've lost our memory and we've lost our language um mm. and in the sense that uh if we're honest with our with our history as Christians we look back and we see that the the times when the church and the group of believers for the strongest is, was, was in the midst of suffering and persecution. Um, yeah. And that at, at the times when the church bore its witness the most, uh, was when we were in a place of weakness and not power. Mm -hmm. Um, I think our memory has been wiped of that largely because of, um, Western ideals around philosophy and uh, profit and various other things distractions um, I Think the other thing is is we no longer have we know we no longer understand our words mm. um, There's been a detachment um, From meaning uh, when we use words so that, you know It's the it's the idea that when someone asks you how you're doing the usual answer is fine,
4: right? No one right. actually
0: means that. Right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but right. but we don't actually want to enter into someone else's life or want someone else to enter into our right. lives. And so it's it's the breakdown of community and the language copies that. Yes. Um and so in a sense you could say that like I've I've had I've talked to several people who uh have dealt with various types of suffering within the last three or four years and, and the only thing I can tell them is you know, lean into the suffering. Um because we if you believe in a God that's big enough, uh then that God can hold you and will not let you go to the depths mm-hmm. alone. Mm-hmm. Uh he he will pull you back. Um and so leaning into that suffering is not a bad thing. It's actually that's uh, actually where the redemption happens. Yeah. Um that's where the the good happens. Uh that's uh that's the theology of the cross right there. Yep. Um and so I I, I have a hard time a lot of times seeing my fellow Christians use those, those terminologies when people lose someone Uh, as much as I may be reformed in a lot of ways. Like, I don't ever want to hear anyone say it's God's plan.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like that's,
0: that's the most cliche. Uh, You don't, they don't actually know what they're saying when they say that. Um, And it's like Job. It's it's like Job. Like he, there was nothing about Job uh, that was scared of talking to God, mm-hmm. talking back to God. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was righteous in God's eyes. It says so. And so, um, God addressing him in the end was was God recognizing and not m- being mad at him, mm-hmm. but recognizing that he's so limited that he doesn't understand the full the fullness of the depths in which suffering goes and as someone who is currently dealing with family members that are dealing with uh alzheimer's memory loss uh, my whole way of looking at the current church is through the eyes of my family members and seeing just a complete detachment from meaning um and i think (laughs) weirdly enough alzheimer's is a brilliant picture of what's happened to the, to, the, to the Western Church and the American Church specifically is that we just, we've just we detached ourselves from our history. We've detached ourselves from the language that meant so much mm-hmm. uh, to thousands of years of, of uh, pilgrims that have gone before yeah. us. Um, and I think I keep going back to the one phrase from C.S. Lewis when he says that, the, uh, that pain is the megaphone uh, that tells, you know, it's the megaphone to the world to wake us up uh God uses it to to wake us up and and the fact that we just want to avoid it is terrifying to me um and and that's where this you know in the book uh, pet cemetery you you think about the the lines where Lewis creed is saying well she's got to learn about this sometime and uh understandably rachel is is hesitant uh because she's dealt with it in the past and it's been traumatizing um and so it's it's hitting that that balance of both having hope but recognizing that that there that there's a reality that we have to that we have to confront at some point and and then whenever we do confront that and whenever we're in the depths of that suffering, how we learn to hold and find that hope once again um and it's kind of like what you were saying with the Richard War quote i think in some ways is fine being getting on to the other side of that of that suffering and finding that hope is is that second life uh, that mm-hmm. you're speaking about and so um yeah that's my my thing is is i think a lot of it is just as americans we we don't care about history we don't care about memory we don't care about what our words mean um and i think it bears out in so many
2: ways so
3: well uh... Andy do you, Andy I want you to have a moment. What what are you thinking?
2: Um well, I've been listening to you guys and I want to make sure I have the question right. Um so what is the question? <laughs> i know that's weird um, no but I've no been no really no. listening yeah and paying yeah attention. well the
3: the the uh, uh inciting question was something of the nature of why do you feel we're so ill-equipped to deal with grief and and you know kind of specifically couching it in more of a a faith environment um since many of us come from that sort of background so uh, you know i expressed the notion of observing a a church community aspect of of how and and you can blow this out broadly speaking as all of us have done to a certain degree why why do we have such a difficult time uh dealing with grief
2: okay well my thoughts on it is i believe everybody on this podcast is a male um (laughs) and one of the things that i was taught was to stuff my feelings, Mm, was to um, push them down, to not react, to be stoic, to be the John Wayne or the, um, you know, or my favorite Leonardo, the Ninja Turtle. (laughs) Um, But the goal of it was to be that leader, but to be a leader who did not express their feelings. And so I think grief stirs something up inside of us that we're not accustomed to um to feeling. It's something that I don't think God intended for us to have. Mm-hmm. Um because I think he wanted us to live a life of, of knowing him and we weren't supposed to know grief until in the garden, you know, we we um let sin come into our life. So I think the original plan is is for us not to have to experience that. And so in a in a in a place where we're where we were meant not to experience heartache, but being told as men to not show your feelings is is really hard i think for and I'm just speaking for guys um to deal with because we are we don't know how to deal with this grief we're not equipped to deal with it, but we are told by society and by you know, maybe you guys had really great father figures who, you know, showcased um, love and acceptance and, you know, walking through um, feelings with you, but I didn't have that. I had a, you know, you soldier Mm -hmm. on. You be a soldier and you do this. And so I think that that we're just ill-equipped to deal with grief but as men we are told the best way to deal with grief is to stuff it and not show others what we're going through.
3: I think that's um I think it's a really great observation Andy. Uh I I do uh, piggybacking on a little bit of everything here I want to be mindful um as one who can sub- be be easily uh, do this that we aren't that I am not solely indicting a broad spectrum without constructive counterpoint. Um, You know, it's interesting. And and Ian Blake, I think to a certain degree, everybody has offered some notion of how I'm going to phrase this here. Um, Have offered some notion of the way kind of the church does things currently, whether it's ignoring sort of institutional memory or, um, you know these ideas, and I think so. My wife's reading a book right now by Barbara Brown Taylor. If you're familiar with her, called "Holy Envy," and the subtitle of the book is "Finding God in the Faith of Others." And and I haven't actually read the book, but this this notion, this idea, really fascinates me, and and I I want to incorporate a little bit. So since I started reading, or re-engaging Pet Cemetery for this particular conversation, um, the terrible a uh, utterly tragic shooting in Christchurch uh New Zealand occurred and what has played out in the wake of that in that country has been really amazing to me uh and mm-hmm. really encouraging and challenging and 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 fascinating and 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 when i use conversation like why are we ill equipped it's it's because i watch brothers and sisters, uh, be it in the church or, uh, here in the United States, generally speaking, and, and those two things entwined as well. And, um, if you listen to mine and reads conversation with J.R. Forsteros on his book, empathy for the devil, a, a phrase that came up in that conversation that I've kept with me is this gospel of loss. And, I am not a person who thinks you should go around just sort of, uh, completely, um, absorbing the blows of life as this sort of presumptive gospel of loss that we're just going to live in. But, and, and Blake, I can't remember the, the phrasing, but something you said made me think of this as well. Like Mm -hmm. we have, we in America and, and yes, this is indicting, but I'm going to reel it back in and try to be make it personalized. But we in America, especially in our American church, want to so co-opt the victorious triumphal language historically attached to honestly a militarized version of our faith that we will completely ignore the loss that is inherent to any sort of victory oh, yeah. in the in the, true, in the true Christ sense. Yes. Um, and, and I watch what has played out in Christchurch, which, you know, I mean, the allegory speaks for itself in that name there. Mm-hmm. But something that's really spoken to me, I'm going to offer two other anecdotes, bring it to you guys, and then we can resolve as desired or needed. But um, if you've watched any of this footage uh, post that, terrible event um it is almost like a uh it's it's there's a there's a phrase i'm looking for that i'm having trouble finding but how jacinda arden uh of Christchurch and how this population is processing this grief is almost like this textbook example of of the way to do it correctly it is corporate it is cathartic uh you watch these children engaging in this haka dance which if you're familiar with that at all is this maori tribal dance that is rooted in it it, it's one it's just beautiful to watch but two knowing that it's it's rooted in this emotionality uh, that is intentional and wrestling with an emotional component to to human life that i feel like we we for some reason Uh, have decided to subsume over here this emotionality so so watching that is really beautiful I'm gonna bring in a really odd anecdote here I I know it's gonna be odd but it actually speaks to this real distilled mm, public uh, 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 display of grief so (laughs) there's this movie about to come out and the first time I saw this trailer I was like no I'm not no that's I'm, I'm out um, and forgive me if any of you are sympathetic to this or, or, or the churches maybe that you attend are, but the movie is this movie Breakthrough. It's about to come out. And, and, <laughs> um, and, and so I'm going to, I'm going to quote Richard Rohr again here. Richard Rohr has this lovely phrase that I've utilized broadly lately. And it's that literalism. So a literal thing. Literalism is the lowest form of translation um Richard Rohr if you've studied him whatsoever he's big on metaphor there's a whole lot of metaphor at work and his teaching all sort of stuff so I remember seeing the trailer for breakthrough and thinking oh my god this is that exactly it is trying to take principles of faith apply them very hard and fast to a very present American expression right uh American ecclesial expression which is just evangelical megachurch kind of thing kids suffers a, a thing this whole Dynamic plays out now. I'm going to anchor this because it is in my interest personally to not just indict, but to sort of contextualize as well. My children, when I first saw this trailer, my children were were with me, and as someone who has experienced this gospel of loss thing and recognizes that there's greater value in this, it 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 troubled me. And this is maybe confessional as much as it is you know sort of conversational here it troubled me for my children to watch a preview like this my children who are just learning the language of faith and the experience of it if it is there for them and what and and from a literalistic standpoint what this trailer tells them because let's be honest odds are good you know the ending of this movie um is if you just pray hard enough in the face of a tragedy you'll get what you quote unquote want. Right. Um, and it's a very, to me, a very troubling sort of interpretation of faith. And it really totally. ignores uh, and overlooks this gospel of loss idea. And so it really, it's fascinating to juxtapose to me, this, this faux triumphalism, mm-hmm. just push harder and victory is yours versus what you see playing out in folks who really don't share our sort of historical faith uh engaging corporately in concert wrestling with deep 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 grief and loss um in this sort of Christchurch experience anyway that's that's probably about the sum of what i have to offer here but did want Reads, Reads being quiet in the corner over there. Uh, wanted, 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 wanted to pivot to some of you guys. Um, I, I would encourage and entreat, even if it's for my own uh, edification here, you know, as best we can, because we are thinkers, um, you know, seek in your thoughts to, to kind of personalize some of this. Um, but I'm going to shut I, up now.
4: I, I want to, I want to go, I want to accept your invitation and I want to thread it back to what Andy was saying um it's going to be impossible for us to have adequate um not only language for grief and for compassion but um it's not just about language language is never something that is utterly uh clinically separate from practice um and practice cannot be so separated from from language because um you are taught how to perform a certain thing? You are taught how to recognize a thing has been done. You put it into words what the thing done is, how it affects you, how it ministers to you. So it's always already enmeshed together. Uh, so it's not. Uh, I, I agree that it's a problem of language, but it's also a problem of 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 practice. There will not be space for a praxis of compassion and grief, and hope, where there is this pathological need for mastery. And um, that goes back to what Andy was saying, like, all of us are are men. Um, Andy, you know, I also, I did not have a, I did not have a father from whom I learned how best to navigate the treacherousness and the and the beauty of the world, both, um but I have somehow like tacitly implicitly picked up along the way that emoting is bad, is to be looked down upon it like is an admission of weakness, and I think that ties in well with the book as well, because Judd says you know that women are supposed to be the ones who keep the secrets, but men are better at keeping secrets their hearts are stonier mm. and whether that is universally so or not, whether that is simply summative of a type of man in a time and place, we are men in that time and place, at least us talking here and probably several listening. And we want to keep secret that we are not masters. Um, Grief is a very clarion call that we do not have mastery over anything ourselves or the world because this this yeah. disruptive thing comes and utterly dismantles what had been secure before or we had thought to be secure. And when things were going sure. okay, it is easier to tell yourself. You do, in fact, have the mastery all as well. But when you are forced to a place where you have to concede i have no control whatsoever it's terrifying in and of itself but it also throws into complete disarray your sense of um having constructed a self worth being of of having made it somewhere along this project of becoming a self and that's too painful much of the time to to admit to say I, I've botched this entire thing like being me. I've been entrusted. I have been gifted with uh, the gift of myself and I couldn't even manage that um, exacerbated mm-hmm. by if if you have a family like because it will immediately call into question, how could I possibly care for them as well? My own self, I did not make myself. I was given myself and I have... I it up, and I fear irremediably, and that is, we're always close to the precipice of feeling that, but to admit it is to, it's like that will make it too real, and so long as we are told implicitly that we must strive for mastery, we will never be able to Embrace the wholeness that only comes from relinquishing any illusion of mastery. Until that happens, we will not be able to tell the truth, as the psalmist even can. Like, I am in misery, Lord. Please come to my aid. I do not have this. And that's what we see in our lives. That's what I have seen in my own. Um
3: Well, but you, you make it, Ian, you, you brush up against a good point there and, and, uh, just to, to disseminate some of these ideas too. But like something that is arresting and important to even tie this back into the book. Um, Reed and I brushed up against this in our Black Mirror conversation last year. Um, but what's so telling about, um, why this notion of grief is so prevalent in Pet Cemetery and, and whether King kind of recognized the, the more kind of spiritual component to what he was writing or not, but like, lose mastery of self and career and destiny and family is utterly upended in this yeah. passing of gauge in the original story. And like so many of us and Andy, you alluded to this early on in this conversation about, you know, your own eminent child and how you would approach this, this situation. Like we abort the true healing, the true re, uh assembly of that second half of life in roar Speaks self when we certain when we cut off uh when we skip to triumph now yeah. because because in lou creed's mind whatever arises out of that cairn upon the micmac burial ground a triumph occurs to him which is a return now i mean there's a whole lot of analogy we could derive out of this. Like we, when we abort grief itself, Mm -hmm. what we gain in return is this undead abomination. I mean, you could, you you could run a whole lot of places with that.
5: Um, Well, and when in, and in the book, one of the things that stands out to me is that, that Lewis makes a plan where he basically says, I'm going to see if this works. And if it, if it doesn't work, if it's awful, if what, emerges out of that ground is is bad then i'll just i'll just re-kill it and if what emerges out of that ground is good then i'll move to florida and call ellie and rachel and they'll come join us and you know have new identities and and all will be well again like that was one of the interesting parts to me in the book is his sort of his sort of formulating out the next steps of when he does get gauge yeah. back, um, if he gets gauge back, is like this will this is what I will what I will do next. And what's interesting to me about the struggles we have with grief, I do not think we have an easy time accepting that there is a purpose in suffering. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that to say that like, oh yeah, all of the grief that we suffer was necessary and all of the grief that we suffer was part of some bigger plan. Uh, That is not what I'm saying. But I feel like we too easily dismiss the time spent in the midst of grief and in the midst of pain that we will violate that time by mm-hmm. as 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 somebody has uh, as, as probably more than one of us have said in this conversation, we'll violate the time by by skipping to the end, mm-hmm. by skipping to when when all is well and skipping to the portion. And that's some of what's getting all the way back to how this conversation, this part of the conversation began. That's part of what the impulse is when the platitudes come in. Yeah. Let me right. skip mm-hmm. to the thing that's going yeah. to help. When, when, when when—in point of fact, the reality is, nothing will really make it better until it's just, until it's just better. Mm -hmm. Nothing will really. Until every sad
4: thing comes untrue.
5: Exactly, Mm -hmm. and we have such a resistance to that truth. Yeah, we cannot getting back to uh, Job's come up a lot more than I expected him to, but getting back to Job, just sitting in the ashes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Sitting, sitting there and sitting with it. This is the time. This is the day. This is the moment. Um, And a counterpoint to that is something very interesting, which David said after fasting, praying, shaving his head, sitting in grief, sitting in sackcloth, sackcloth for his son, not to die. And then the moment that they come to David and say, "Your son has died," he immediately gets up and begins to clean himself yeah. and immediately gets up and begins to sort of restore himself and his statement back to them when they asked why he was doing this and that they thought it was so abrupt is he said he can't come to me, but I can go to him right and And I think that that you know there's been some really really uh, potent observations on the table and i think uh even more potent questions about why are we so ill-equipped to deal with grief why are we so why are we so uncomfortable with mourning Mm -hmm. and being Mm -hmm. being in a space to where we end uh nathan you and i have talked about this in several contexts on the show i think we've even had um outside of pod conversations with our friends here of like just as a national identity as a spiritual identity in the church um we're just not we're just not very good and just not very comfortable with sitting in the ashes yeah. with properly grieving and with properly saying this this is a mournful thing people will pivot to blame they'll pivot to fixing it they'll pivot to triumph they'll pivot away from everywhere then that that whole, I did not. I mean, it, it's it's noteworthy. I liked the film quite a bit. Uh, the film I'm talking about is Room, just recently with Brie Larson. Um, I liked the film quite a bit. I read the book. Uh, I liked the book quite a bit. But there was a statement in the book that I think I've mentioned on Pod before, but that has 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 come up many times for me in uh, conversations about grief and loss. And that's they called the room the mother and son. In that the mother called the room to the son, called it a crater. Um, and the way she defined a crater was a crater was a hole where something happened. Mm-hmm. Mm. And and as I've been kind of trying to assess even in this conversation, this idea of grief is like, yeah, we want to fill that. Yeah, yep. we we want to fill the crater as quickly as possible. Fill it with accusation, fill it with solution, fill it with final chapter stuff, fill yeah. it as quickly as we possibly can. Right. And then once we do that, once that hole is filled, then what what will we have left? And I think that something that would probably behoove all of us is just to simply recognize there's holes here mm-hmm. where something happened. Yeah, there are there are places the pet cemetery, before the burial ground, before the deadfall, is filled with markers, and the way in the film and in the book that Jud Crandall kind of a- a expresses it is, um, you know, this is the place where the dead speak, and there is something powerful to recognizing this this whole. Where something where something happened, um, and I feel like a lot of times in our own grief and in our own loss, we just try too too quickly, too much to uh, to skip to the end or to skip to an end. And in Lewis's case, in this, you know, not to intentionally try to pivot back to the book, but just in Lewis's case, in in this situation, um, even even the cat. Like even the cat, let me let me avoid this conversation, um, right? Yeah, let me let me let me not have this. Con- and again, that was Judd's doing. He didn't know the cat was going to come back, but that's really what's on the table. And uh, finding a way to avoid having the conversation. Um, Rachel can't speak about Zelda. Yeah, go ahead, Blake. I've oh, talked so, about it. Yeah.
0: No, no, you're good. Um, I was just gonna say, kind of going off that, is that part of part of gr- dealing with grief uh in life is we were never meant to deal with it alone. Mhm. Yeah. Um yeah. and so community is I feel like we haven't we've we've kind of we've kind of uh talked about it a little bit uh implicitly but I think the bears mentioning and that grief is something that we must do together. Yeah. Um and and yeah. it's it's funny if you if you think about Job's friends. <laughs> Here we go with Job again, but I think it's pretty pretty telling that uh, when when they did the most fruitful work in their dealing with Job in his grief was when they were present and quiet. Right.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm.
0: And presence is not something we do well. Right. Mm. Because silence is something that we are uncomfortable with. Yep. Uh, because we not only right. have to deal with ourselves, but we have to deal with the pain of someone else. Right, and uh, and I think, like the image you brought up, Nathan, of of Christchurch, that is a country that somehow has learned to deal with grief together in a communal sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and 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 they they there's probably elements of their culture and their history that that still they have not confronted. Just like any other country, but for whatever has caused them to look at this tragedy and come together as a people, united in presence and silence. Yeah. And action after that is pretty telling. Um, but I, I think we, <laughs> to to, it's like that. Getting to the end too fast is that we're we're so resurrection oriented that we forget what happens before that, what leads to resurrection. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we forget to spend our time on on the Saturday in between. Yep.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Um, totally.
0: And so, uh, yeah, I, I feel like that's where the silence happens. That's where the work is done is trying to deal with our own, uh, our own being. And then on top of that, dealing with the grief of someone else, um, Because presence is not easy, Um, right? Being in the room with someone who is confronting a grief that we don't understand, a loss that we have not felt, is never going to be comfortable. But it's something we have to do. Yeah, we have to do it together. There's 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 no way around it.
4: And
5: I man, okay, I'm so sorry. Please, can I say one real quick thing? So I I want to hone in on that, Blake. It's the one day that's not talked about yeah. there. They talk about Friday. They talk about Sunday, but sa- that Saturday is the, and because, because in, in the minds of those of us who are ill equipped to deal with grief, nothing happens there. <laughs> mm-hmm. This it, that's, that's just the waiting time. But the fact is they were all there together. All of them, yeah. <laughs> all of the disciples were hiding and, and broken and Peter in the midst of agony and Judas has hanged himself and, and all of, and, and so all of these things, but in our minds, it is so easy to position that Saturday as just a placeholder. Right. As just a, a point between the loss and the triumphant return. But that Saturday is where so many of us live. Yeah. Indefinitely for so many of us. It's not just a singular day. Yeah. It is a season. It is a period for some of us. It is, what the new normal looks like when you suffer really a cataclysmic loss. Yes. And and we would do ourselves a profound service to really meditate, perhaps, and this episode will air following Easter, but we're recording it beforehand, and perhaps, you know, for anybody approaching the Easter season uh let, let's spend a bit of time with that Saturday yes. spend a bit of time in silence where not much is happening where in the crater in the crater yes in the hole mm-hmm. where something happened and maybe uh we will we will find some peace um or if not peace then at the very least uh some company in uh in the reality that that we will that there yeah we we are wandering through a thing and uh and that is that is that's a that's a very powerful notion to me that i just didn't want to leave the conversation without without pointing out again thank you blake yeah hey Uh
4: you know if read like like you said if we don't find peace at the very least we can find um a solidarity with a a dead christ who is entombed Mm. and who's and who's yeah Fighting on our behalf is through the absolutely pure passivity of being dead. Uh, mm. And and that's why um, in my tradition, I, we're going to observe um, a Holy Saturday uh, vigil um, where mm. this is the uncomfortable day following his death. And it is the death of all of our dreams that we had for him. That that we thought yeah. might be coming true, and we just have to occupy an entire day where I thought this was going to go somewhere completely different, and there is now nothing, yeah. and yeah, um, yeah, not short circuiting to Easter always uh, immediately, um, um, just leapfrogging over over Good Friday and Holy Saturday.
5: Certainly, certainly. Well, um, gentlemen, uh, we we have spent a significant amount of time discussing, uh, I think, some very significant things. Um, I'm going to very briefly say, like, you know, we, we should wind it down soon, but um, we're about to pivot into our ratings measurement for this particular piece. Before I do that, is there anything else that anybody has just been sitting there quietly or patiently waiting to say and has not had the opportunity? If not, we'll move straight on, but I want to give that that moment in case anybody had something they wanted to say. Nope. All right. So we are going to move into... Now, last time we did this, we were under our old measurement of David S. Pumpkins. Uh, pour, yeah. pour a cold one out for David S. Pumpkins, because he no longer oh, is around... Man. Um. So, libation for old David. (laughs) (laughs) So now he 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 was buried in the pet cemetery, not the McMackbury. So so we've just got the marker up for him. But um, so now we are. So now we're going to the fog meter. Damn
4: orangeo trucks. (laughs)
5: <laughs> all those Orenko <laughs> trucks. Um, so uh, so what we're going to do, I am going to bounce around a bit more in this measurement, but I'm just going to basically give you the opportunity to measure. Uh, we're going to start by talking about its fear factor. Um, for the purposes of this uh, release, let's stick with um, this is going to be a little tough for us to do after all the conversation we've done, but let's basically stick with the book. So we're going to, oh, wow. we, we've talked, we've talked. Come on. And we've talked explicitly about <laughs> <without Allah. laughs> like, I'm cut Pull out of the now, Andy. <laughs> um, so, so we're basically going to, because the book is the source of the entire story. So um, I'm going to have something else that we'll be able to address the other iterations of it. So for the fog meter, we are going to address uh, the book itself um, on a measurement of fear and God. So first th- first place I'm going to go is to you, Ian. So, uh, measure it on a scale of one to 10. The novel by Stephen King, Pet Cemetery, on a scale of one to 10, uh, how would you rate it for its fear factor?
4: I think I'll give it a six. And don't be fooled. I think that that's pretty good. I think it mostly rides through on, uh, dread. Um, yeah. And, um, this time around, this time around, I had the extra added, uh, the the dread the the like nausea of uh I have I now have three sons and re-experiencing mm. th- because text does something different than a movie yeah the twenty nineteen right. like having it at a birthday party I'm watching it the night before my son Owen's seventh birthday party was like again in the midst of a not tremendous movie but it was still like kind of gut wrenching like oh my gosh this is ugh, I'm watching <laughs> this sure on the yeah. cusp of this thing um but being in Lewis's mind and heart around that, I think puts it around a six.
5: Gotcha. All right.
4: And the Wendigo, Wendigo,
5: Wendigo, Blake, I'm coming to you next.
0: Uh, fear factor. I'm, I'm probably going to go with a five. Uh, I think I, I agree with Ian that it, it goes more for dread. Um, it's, I think it's more of an idea book. Um, Mm. It doesn't, it's not really scary per se um, until like the last, like what, 50 pages maybe. Yeah. Right. Um, Sure. And I just, I, I, I don't have that visceral scare uh, with many things in general. So, but, but I think it does have a good overarching dread uh, that I think like the 2019 nailed in a lot of ways. Um, Certainly. So I'm going to give it about five.
5: All right, I am going to land for myself at about a seven. Um, I feel like it's, uh, its strength is in its premise, but I agree with everything that you guys are parsing out there. Andy, uh, for the first half of the first hundred pages of the book, what would you give it for <laughs> for its
2: fear measurement? Um, For my first measurement <laughs> <laughs> of this book, I would say... That it got me at a four.
5: All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Nathan Rouse, where would you rank the fear factor of this uh, of this novel?
3: Um, I think if you've listened to Fear of God long, you know that Pet Cemetery was my first Stephen King book, and it scared the crap out of me when I was a wee lad. And I don't know if just my Fear of God experience has inoculated me a little bit to some of these genre's excesses, but... I think I might land at a, I'm going to go with a six. I will say, even acknowledging it as more dread than scares, like the listening this time audio wise before either of the films, the kite flying chapter in the book, I was on Mm. the edge of my seat because I couldn't remember exactly where the event happened. And that whole, that whole chapter, I was just
5: like sweating. Sure. Sure. Understood. Well, Nathan, what would you uh, pivoting right on that? What would you say for the God factor?
3: Um, I think again, built into baked into its premises, a lot there. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna go with a four. I think, uh, as Blake alluded, there's a lot of decent ideas as its foundation, but I'm not 100% convinced that it kind of knows how to navigate some of those ideas
5: makes sense. Andy, what about for you on the substance slash God measurement? In the book? Yeah, for the book.
2: (laughs) Well, (laughs) I'm just going to have to say it's a one for me. I was like, well, I loved that opening chapter.
5: (laughs) Uh, That's a nice man. (laughs) Alright, so uh, for myself, for substance measurement, I do think that it's that that indicative of the fact that Stephen King said he would, you know, was, like, scared of this, I think this is a book that probably gets away from him a little bit in terms of his own conclusions, and more just sort of haunts him. Um, so I'm gonna land on a six for my substance measurement. Um, Blake, what about for you?
0: Uh, surprising everyone, maybe. I'm I'm actually gonna go for a... I'm gonna go for an eight. Uh, Alright. Because wow. I think there's... No, so this was the first time I'd actually read the book, and I I knew the basic storyline going into it, uh, because I had seen the movie, and and so I figured there'd be things that were taken out from the book that I, I didn't know about, but I knew the basic premise, sure. and so I went into it with that in mind. Um, but I was surprised at how much it was Judd's book. Like, he almost mm. felt like the central character in some Interesting. ways. Interesting, yeah. And... And the way he discusses death, and the way that he discusses that pull within that that tension in your own heart uh, between yeah. doing what's right and doing what's what's wrong, yeah, um, was so powerful to me. And I, I I think those ideas, while I do agree that King does not navigate it well by the end, um, sure, I think there's enough there to go into some really strong conversations um, and so I'm going to give it an 8 just because I think there's there's enough material there to to riff on um, even if the ending
4: doesn't quite nail it.
5: Makes sense. Alright, Ian, bring us home. Wow. What is your measurement for the God factor or substance measurement? Uh,
4: sometimes 8 is better. Alright. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh I da,
3: da. I can't I believe it I'm, took us that I'm, long to get that in there. No, that's the thing. I'm shocked. Like
4: I thought I was ready with like 17 zingers for this, but here Some, I am, and it's just now. Hey, sometimes,
0: the, sometimes the weight is better. <laughs> purity oh,
4: purity culture. That was
3: okay, so that's very church. <laughs> very church the cat of you there, Blake. Yeah,
0: yeah, you're
4: welcome. <laughs> um, I'm gonna give it a seven. Okay. Um, because I think it, I think it throws a lot of. Things up in the air. Sure. Um, no, King doesn't always catch them, But sometimes that doesn't always matter as much as what's left in your craw that you just are forced to dwell on. And I, I, I just think that the conceit works. I, I, I love that there's the transition from life into this text from the grief of his daughter to exploring um what does life mean what does death mean mm. and uh doing it through a Wendigo through um Micmac burial grounds um yeah i i i th- i think that the 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 balls that he throws up in the air are interesting enough and substantive enough to give it a kind of a a higher score like that, even if ultimately, I I think it gets away from him. I totally do. And I like that he himself is surprised. Like the book's conclusion, sometimes dead is better. He doesn't know if he even buys that.
5: Right. But that's,
4: I I like that. I like that Joss Whedon doesn't necessarily buy some of the stuff that his character says. Right. And maybe it's better for that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm going to go with seven. All right. Sometimes seven's better. So
5: that means that when all this is tallied up, we collectively give on the fog meter, the novel pet cemetery a five and a half out of 10. Uh, That is our, that is our measurement. Uh, Again, the fog meter is pretty brutal, but um, so we give it a five and a half out of 10, but I'm going to round Robin very quickly. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you each this question and this will be our conclusion. Then we'll sign off and, and say farewell and, cast aside all of the other you know we'll we'll join our own karens if you will um (laughs) so uh my question to you will be as brief as you can just cite whether you would recommend um the novel either version of the film or if you've heard it the audio drama as well so um just bounce around and just would you generally recommend them um and andy i'm gonna go to you first
2: Yes, I would recommend. Them. <laughs> he's like um,
5: he's like I would recommend them. I don't know if you'll finish, but I would recommend them.
2: <laughs> you'll finish the movies. You might not
5: finish the audio drama.
2: You might only get to the first part. Um, the book, the book, you'll you'll finish. Um, but I think I think you gotta. A classic on your hands and <laughs> And when you're dealing with a classic, there's nothing you can do more than recommend it. So I recommend everything. You got it. You
5: got All it. handwriting. That's yeah. great. That's great. All right. Well, um Nathan Rouse, would you uh how ha- how do you feel about these pieces of material in general?
3: Um, I think that's uh, the films both are interesting artifacts. Um, of course, Fred Gwynn stands out pretty monumentally of the original, but I think the only the only the only truly necessary version is the text, and so I definitely recommend it. And i i don't i don't um, utterly you know uh, excoriate the two films. I just I just think ultimately they're both just okay. So recommend
4: the gotcha. book. Kind of neutral on the films.
5: Gotcha. Okay, Ian, what would you recommend or not?
4: Uh, I'm going to Xerox a page out of uh, Andrew's playbook and say I agree with everything that's been said.
5: All right. (laughs) I agree. Y'all, I agree with what you guys have been saying. Um i'll uh, pivot in myself here uh so I would highly recommend the text of the book um with the asterisk that if you're sensitive to uh bad things happening to children this is not your this is not your book um but uh I would recommend otherwise the text of the book I would recommend the um uh, nineteen eighty nine version if you want to see a film version of it I'm still quite fond of it. At the moment, I would not recommend the 2019 version of it, just from my experience and sort of walking out of it. I will probably revisit it at some time, and that may change. And I would highly, highly recommend the BBC radio drama because I thought that was a really wonderful adaptation. But before I leave that, can we talk for a second, for just a brief second, or just acknowledge that we've failed to mention the most powerful and impactful moment of any of these things. Um, Andy, I don't know if you saw it. Can I call it?
2: Can I call it?
5: Uh, Yeah, sure. Go right ahead.
2: (laughs) When the truck hits the kid, we didn't get a flat Stanley situation. No. Oh, my God.
5: Well, it's along those same lines. It's along those same lines because... We have yet to acknowledge in anywhere in this conversation, and Blake, I haven't forgotten you, but we've yet to acknowledge anywhere in this conversation um, that at one point, after you know, resurrected Gage emerges on the scene to show himself to mom, like wearing a top hat and a cane, like walking oh, around oh, pimp, pimp daddy cane, like walking in his <laughs> <That's>... little suit, <laughs> like, like that is one of my favorite things in any of this. I have no idea where that came from, but it oh, was, you know where you know, it came you know, from? It, it, no, it, I don't it, know. It, do,
0: you, do you remember from the uh, from the documentary?
5: Oh you shoot! i no, i it. it's,
0: it's supposed to pattern after Zelda. The picture of Zelda in the hallway at at uh, Rachel's parents' house. Oh yes,
5: because Switch she's that wearing
0: the, the purple suit oh. and the top hat. Yeah, it's supposed to mirror that.
5: <laughs> oh my gosh! And I remember the picture of Zelda in like her parents' place, being like, "Man, that is an awful." Pi- I yeah, do not know exactly. if I would display that picture. And then <laughs> no, that makes that makes perfect sense. They oh, my have gosh.
4: really incredible judgment. Like, <laughs> let's leave let's leave our seven year old daughter with the crazy meningitis sister. Oh my god! Let's gosh. have this horrible portrait. Oh, let's, awful. let's hate Lewis. You know, oh. like, man.
5: Getting a fist fight at the funeral. Um all right. <laughs> Blake, hey, <man. laughs> Blake, uh, bring us home, brother. What uh would you recommend or not about any of these iterations?
0: I would recommend pretty much everything, uh, including the new one, because <laughs> Like I said in my review, uh, I still enjoyed it. I came out. I was like, "That was that was an enjoyable hour and a half of my time." Um, I was probably still reeling from the awesomeness of the ending because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, it fed my nihilistic soul. Um, <laughs> and and so yeah, I really enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed the experience of seeing um, or reading the book and, slash listening to the book. Uh, seeing the the old movie again, uh, and then listening to the radio play was was good. Um, it's my probably my least favorite of the strict textual elements. Um, the only thing I hated was Pet Cemetery Two. Uh, ah, that was yeah. the biggest waste of my time. So not much worth talking about with that. No, no, for for
3: what it's worth, like <laughs> no one encouraged you to do that. You know? oh, oh <laughs> that was extra what?
2: credit, Blake. No, I, I. <laughs> I encouraged after the poor I after encouraged. the poor showing
0: from the stand. I had to uh Andy's to make like, a mix.
5: "Hey, can you watch Pet Cemetery 2 and just tell me what you think cuz I uh, I can't I make it get through back. the first one." Is what <laughs> I just got to know I how to finish it.
2: the 2019 one guys yeah. that <laughs> we're one. so proud of you Andy you made it you
5: made it oh man I am a king well gentlemen this has been uh, very thought-provoking and encouraging and then also very uh, fun and insightful thank you all very much for taking the time to be here. I know it's late for some of you guys. Um, Nathan, yours and my social media cues will be at the tail end of this episode. But before we finally sign off, uh, does anybody have any particular social media internet realms that they would like to promote that they would like to say where listeners can find them, Andy, Blake, or Ian?
4: You can follow uh, Jeff Hansen at, on Twitter. (laughs) at, At Gorf Jansen. Uh, and to put it in uh, a Blake accent, that's G W A R F <laughs> Jansen.
1: <laughs>
4: all right, Blake. Uh,
0: you can you can find all my writing at BlakeICollier com or Real World Theology is where most of my reviews go up, so you can
2: find me there
5: awesome andy you still doing the sleeping thing like showing all your all your family <laughs> members and, yeah, margaret
2: like. you can find my wife at margaretsleeping.com. if you want to if you want to follow me um search the hashtag fireblake now on instagram <laughs> and you will see me trying to get Blake fired from real world theology. So- <laughs> <laughs> what a
5: campaign. Oh, so great. That's so great. Well, gentlemen, this has been a real treat, a real pleasure. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to engage this material and to uh have this conversation with us. We really really appreciate it. Thank you all very much. It's our
4: pleasure. Uh, yeah.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And uh, listeners uh, as did. always, thank you for listening uh and we will It sure catch was you- a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we will catch you guys next week where we'll start yet another run of some Stephen King material. Stay tuned for that, and we will see you all then. See
2: you. See you then. Later. So long. Bye. Come out the ground
5: night making the sound. But smell a death is on around. And the night was the cold wind
1: blows. No one can blow by
5: i yeah. yeah. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. You can continue this conversation in a variety of ways on Twitter at thefearofgod, on Instagram at fearofgodpodcast. You can like or follow us on Facebook or join the Fear of God Facebook discussion group. You can follow Reed on Twitter at Reed Lackey and Nathan at the Nathan Rouse. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com Or visit morethanonelesson.com to comment on the official episode posts. And lastly, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.